How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 19 of X-Lapsed, where we are moving on in to the second issues of the Wave 1 Dawn of X books. And we're starting with X-Men number 2, or X-Men volume 5 number 2, or legacy number, what would it be, 646? I, I don't know. I won't even mention legacy numbers anymore, unless they show up on the cover again. Uh, so X-Men number 2, we'll just say that. January 2020 cover date. Stories called Summoner. Written by Jonathan Hickman, with pencils by Lionel Francis Yu. Inks by Jerry Allen Gillen. Colors by Sonny Go. Letters VCs Clayton Cowles. Designs Tom Muller. Edits Bisa White-Sabolsky. Cover price is only $3.99. And I never thought I'd see the day where I said a, where I would say a comic book is only $4. But here we are. We've had uh, This is the cheapest book we've covered yet. Uh, went on sale November 13th, 2019. So let's hop right in. We open at Summer House, with Cyclops looking to draft his kids into going on a mission with him. And it doesn't take much convincing. Then again, heading out with Dad is probably a bit more fun for the Summer's kids than staring into a giant lava lamp that they're sitting next to, which looks very dull. Uh, we get a double page spread of creds, then we meet our cast for the issue, and, well, we've already met them. It's Cyclops, Prestige, and Cable. Now, the deal here is another island has been spotted somewhere in the distance, and now Krakoa itself is pulling itself toward it. It's worth noting that they can't have Doug Ramsey ask the island why it's approaching this new island, since he's off in space, so I do enjoy this continuity. It's letting us know that everything's happening, (laughs) so uh, we're not wasting our time reading some of these books. So I do love the continuity. Um, it's also uh, Cyclops. Uh, he takes the uh, you know the full blame for giving the New Mutants the thumbs up to hop on the Starjammer to head out to uh, Shi'ar space to visit uh, Sam. Now Cyclops here is acting a bit, I don't know, goofy dad a little bit. Um, kind of weird. Uh, it feels like he's kind of playing into like a suburban dad stereotype, and I'm really not sure I like it. Anyway... The summer zizzes come within sight of this new island, and it's got a volcano in the middle that looks like a more like a gate to hell, complete with like a Lovecraftian horror tentacly thing spewing from the mound. Now they land, and the kids point out what a great job Scott did landing the jet, which for some reason prompts him to talk about how much therapy he's endured over the years, which feels forced and goofy. Uh, it's like I almost expect there to be a laugh track or like... Like, you know, put his hands on his hip, you know, cock to the side and look at the camera. Am I supposed to feel like he's out of character, or am I just being hypersensitive here? I don't know. Now, Rachel does, like, a teleswipe of the area and only comes back with uh, readings of normal fauna and regular wildlife. Except, of course, for that big old Lovecraftian volcano, of course. Uh, she describes the presence as being human-ish. Now, the summer zizzes make their way through the foliage... Looking kind of like a scene out of Lost or something. Rachel mentions how beautiful the scenery is, which causes Scott to suggest, hey, let's all go to Hawaii to see some real nice scenery. Rachel says she's been there, but only in the far-flung future where everything was, you know, a burning mess. Scott says they gotta go, but then remembers a place in Shi'ar space that she might like better. As luck would have it, it's an island in Chandelar, which is uh, where Cannonball lives, right? 
Now, did I gotta ask, did Hickman, like, create Chandelar? I can't imagine why we'd be getting so many, well, well, two mentions of it in these books. Just seems a weird place to keep citing. Anyway, after the vacation chat wraps up, they happen across a rhinoceros with a third eye marking. Cable takes aim, but remarks that whatever it is, doesn't look like a meat-eater. Then, some of those tentacles and a big old gaping mouth emerge from off-panel to eat the poor vegetarian rhinoceros. The summer zizzes take aim and start blasting at the horror. We shift scenes to a place called the Iraq Moor, which I'm going to assume is like deep in the bowels of that volcano, since uh, we're seeing some lava, it stands to reason that it's in the volcano. There's also a weird-looking fella here. He's completely white, besides a marking on his chest, and he's got uh, some big old black bleeding eyes, looking like he's wanna, he's hanging out with a poth over in Fallen Angels. This is a summoner, or a high summoner, and so we follow this scene into a, an info page telling us all about him. Oh, the summoners, not this one in particular. It's not one of the interesting ones, uh, though it does mention Arako, or Arako, which was that other island from Krakoa's origin story from Hoxpox. Um, last we heard, however, was uh, Arako was sealed away somewhere else by Apocalypse and the Horsemen, right? Um, we rejoin our X-Men, riding some rhino mounts across the island, and we learn that uh, they were able to best that tentacled beast. And uh, Cable even regard- remarks that he took a bite out of it. As they continue their ride, they are greeted by... That weirdo summoner who pops right up through the ground. He greets them, however, there's a language problem. The summoner speaks in an almost song-like language while, while only hearing the mutant's words as harsh grunts. Cable offers the summoner a gift in the form of a grenade. Uh, the summoner is pleased but curious, and so he starts pressing all the buttons on the boom ball until, well, the ball goes boom. Cable didn't know what he expected to happen, but pretty sure that wasn't going to be it. Uh, this is pretty dumb. <laughs> I'm guessing this is supposed to be funny, and I suppose it kind of is, but it just seems... I don't know, it just doesn't seem tonally right. Uh, now, the summoner is naturally quite displeased with being blown up, and so calls forth all sorts of horror, along with some shadowy warriors with similar markings on their chest as the summoner himself, which, I mean, duh, the X-Men have to fight. Rachel has the idea to try to download their Krakoan language into the summoner in hopes that they'll be able to communicate and get him to call off the attack. Which is exactly what she does, and wouldn't you know it, it works. The summoner and Cable then clear up the, you know, grenade confusion. Then Cyclops explains the situation regarding a Krakoa's approach. Remember, they don't know why Krakoa would be drawing near and are expecting the worst. The summoner is none too bothered, and he asks Cyclops if he loves anybody. Scott gets all coy here and says, sure, you know, for argument's sake, yes, I do love, quote, a single someone. The summoner asks if Cyclops wants to be with that single someone, and Cyclops confirms, duh, yeah, of course he does. The summoner gives the thumbs up and suggests that Scott will understand what Krakoa is up to. And so, not soon after, Krakoa arrives. And, uh, well, maybe bangs the other island, or maybe they're just merging, whatever the case. When all said and done, it's just like my favorite Spice Girl song, Two Become One. The summoner goes to walk away, and Cyclops asks, what's next? The summoner reveals that he's going to be living here because, well, he lives here. Who's he? Well, it won't take us long to find out. Uh, We'll actually find out right after the next info page here. And this info page is an updated map of Krakoa with the addition of the new bits from the Iraq Coral. Now, with that out of the way, we rejoin our weirdo summoner friend who walks 
his way into the foliage before meeting Apocalypse. Or, I mean, hey. Uh, the big blue guy recognizes the summoner's seed. The summoner warns that an enemy has come and Arako will soon fall. Yes, who the summoner's mother is, to which we find out he's the son of the horseman, War. We wrap up with an embrace, and promising to save all of his children, that being those on Krakoa and those of Arako. And that's where we leave it. The next book we discuss is Excalibur, number two. Well, that was a quickie, huh? <laughs> let's, let's talk about it. Um, this was not what I was expecting. I really wanted there to be a little more focus on the X-Men. I mean, I know it's still early, but we don't even have a team yet, right? Uh, Is this X-Men book, like this core X-Men book, is it going to be like an X-Men spotlight on? Or like solo X-Men, like they had solo Avengers back in the day? Like, is this going to be just like a rotating... I mean, I can get behind that, I guess, but it just feels... uh, I don't know. Those kind of issues always felt a little throwaway to me. And, and again, I know we're very early into this era, but this... We get some stuff here, but it kind of felt like a throwaway. Um, that could just be me, and maybe what I was expecting to get out of these issues, especially, you know, the flagship, you know, straw that stirs the drink book here in X-Men. Uh, let's let's put a pin on that, and we'll uh, let's talk about Cyclops. I can't really say I dug his depiction here. Uh, he came across... To me, is like an uncanny version of a sitcom dad. He's making like weird jokes and references. It just didn't feel Cyclopsy to me. Has he? I mean, has he been like this since returning from the dead? Whenever, whenever it was that that happened? Because uh, I, I don't know. This is uh, these past couple of issues have been my reintroduction to Cyclops, and I don't mean coming back from the dead during you know House of X, Powers of X. I mean that last time <laughs> because. Last I was following X-Men was right before Scott's death, or... Well, I mean, he was already... He was dead, but it was before we found out how he died, because, like, they stretched that reveal out to a point where, like, even I, as, like, a huge Cyclops fan, just didn't give a rat's ass anymore. Then again, it involved the humans, which is, like, to me, basically the Webster's Dictionary definition of things I don't give a rat's ass about, uh, no matter how hard Marvel tries. Um... Now, a few listeners have expressed a bit of trepidation about whether or not Xavier might have tinkered with some of the resurrectees, and, uh, I mean, reading this here and seeing how weird Cyclops is acting, I can't help but feel the same way. Uh, Something definitely stinks here. I'm just not sure exactly what it is. Like, I feel like we're not getting a whole, all the story here, you know? Um, Which is fine, of course. Uh, uh, Something else uh, that uh, I was a bit, maybe not worried about, but just, you know, caused me to raise an eyebrow. Uh, the uh, This pertains to Cyclops, you know, saying all coy that, you know, for argument's sake, I do love a single person. And uh, I don't know where they're headed with this, though. As we've discussed before, there have been rumors. Uh, for all I know, by now, those rumors have already been paid off or dispelled or debunked. But, uh, you know, we'll get there. I don't know. I have not read ahead. I have not looked ahead. And I've avoided pretty much everything I can online that has anything to do with the X-Men. And, I mean, also, I got those weird vibes from the Scott and Lorna scene last issue, so maybe it's that. Who knows? Um, Rachel and Cable really fell into that sort of kind of playful adversarial brother and sister mold pretty quickly. Um, struck me a little bit weird, though. I do suppose with them all living together at Summer House, it stands to reason that they'd uh, get to know each other and get to be on each other's nerves <laughs> a bit. Um, 
Still, though, I can't help shaking the feeling that they're playing a role rather than acting, like, intrinsically. Though, for all I know, that might just be the point of it, right? Um, The Summoner. Let's talk about this Summoner. When I first saw the Summoner, it reeked of being just another boring Hickman character. Um, I know I've made mention of those really, really dull antler-headed aliens from his Avengers run. I'd be lying if I said this didn't strike me as similar. Just like, I don't know, like a blank canvas boilerplate character with some identifiable bits and bobs attached with the markings and whatnot and eyes. Hopefully it's headed somewhere, though uh, part of me thinks that the Summoner might have just be like a seminal seed for the X of Swords event. Now, on on the topic there, are we saying X of Swords or Ten of Swords? Well, I mean, are people saying X or Ten? Because I will always be saying X. <laughs> you know, it's just... I never... I don't think I ever said Powers of Ten <laughs> without, you know, kind of rolling my eyes at it. I, it was always Powers of X and X of Swords, regardless of what it's actually called. I'm going to be calling it X of Swords, unless they actually put the word Ten on there. That's just me. Uh, Now, the merging of Krakoa and the Coral was something. Uh, At least it gave us something new. It felt like things were progressing a little bit. I mean, when we were halfway through the issue, when we got to, like, the staples, I was ready to write it off as, like, having no stakes. Though being very well written, uh, just a chapter from an issue of X-Men Unlimited or something. Uh, Just no consequence until, you know, we hit the staples, of course. Apocalypse, uh, or uh, is really growing into his role as a good guy here. Um, at least that was my take on the scene. He's a he's protector. He's a protector, and he will care for his children, who I'm assuming includes all mutants. You know, uh, I did like the mentions of some of the things going on in the other X books. You know, the opening roll call page does make mention to uh, Xavier's death in X Force number one, and of course Scott makes a reference to the New Mutants hopping aboard the Star Jammer and New Mutants. That said, however, why aren't we seeing anybody react to Xavier's assassination? Like, shouldn't that be, like, the big thing in all these books? You know, outside Magneto just saying, I'm in mourning, I, I, I don't know... I don't know why nobody is really reacting. Unless, of course, it's going to be hand-waved away with the quickness, which I really don't know how I feel about that. Um, Xavier seemed to be, like, the only one whose death carried any actual weight, Right. That and, of course, the, the destruction of the Cerebro helmet. Um, it makes me wonder, like, was the ending bit to X-Force number one supposed to be like a commentary on cliffhangers in contemporary comics? Because that's not what I signed on for. <laughs> I hope not. I mean, how about we leave the commentary for, for jackasses like me, and, and you guys just tell good stories in the books, right? Let's, let's make that deal. Uh, <laughs> overall, though, X-Men number two, kind of underwhelming. Uh, for the most part, I enjoyed it uh, as just a odd little vignette that does inch the story a little bit forward. But I, I can't, I can't say I wasn't expecting more. Uh, I definitely was. Uh, now, before we leave you today, let's hit up some feedback here. We're going to start with a message from Damien regarding episode fourteen, in which we discussed Marauders number one. He says it's interesting to see you grapple with whether or not Kitty's in character. The real issue with Kitty is that she has been everything, from suburban teenage girl to ninja, from headmistress to sexy bar girl, to from agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. to space explorer. The problem that Jerry Duggan has is to reconcile these disparate character beats and move her into a new place. 
The decision to have her claim the name Kate is a clever way to signify that this is a new beginning, but comprising the team of people who share history with her shows that nothing's ignored. I'm pleased to see the characterization stem from how Kitty would react to being locked out of the X-Men. For far too long, she's been driven by writers who were trying to recreate their imaginary girlfriends from adolescence. Whedon, Guggenheim, and particularly Bendis seemed unable to write her without their personal connections getting in the way. That's an excellent point. That's a great point. Kitty has been a lot of things in the comics, and for better or for worse, she's been a lot of things to a lot of people. Uh, The first time I encountered this was during the uh, Warren Ellis run on Excalibur. Uh, I hung out on Usenet all the time. And uh, a lot of the Usenetters I'd follow, they took it as like almost a personal affront that she and Pete Wisdom were, you know, banging. <laughs> they, uh, they did not like that. Pete Wisdom was like public enemy number one on, you know, Rack's, Rack Comics Arts X-Men, <laughs> whatever the hell that Usenet board was called. Uh, I also remember, you know, conversely, a lot of people being annoyed when Claremont came back, and, like, one of the first things he did was establish that Kitty was still only 16 years old, which would uh, make Pete Wisdom look a little, you know, eh, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, or just make it so those stories, you know, that those events, those bangings, <laughs> never actually happened. Um, you're definitely spot on there. I think, I think, I definitely think Kitty falls into that... You know, if you're on the DC side of things uh, and the Teen Titans, that that Donna Troy mold, where readers kind of identify her as like their character in, in like a maybe a romantic sort of way. Uh, <laughs> uh, back to Damien's email. He says, I've already established that I attended Catholic school and therefore my knowledge of Jewish customs is low. I've seen commentary that Kitty is a very Jewish name and Kate is a much more genteel, and this could be read as a rejection of all parts of her identity. Apparently, it's not uncommon for people to change their name as part of a rebellion against their parents. It's an interesting idea that's backed up by the absence of her Star of David necklace. I think it's unintentional as there are a couple of things that happen later that that imply a lack of knowledge of Judaism rather than a deliberate rejection. And uh, personally, I grew up in mostly Jewish neighborhoods. I've told the story on the air before that on Jewish holidays, you know, before they decided to just shut school down for them, my classroom would be comprised of me and a substitute teacher. <laughs> but that said, I, I still don't know a heck of a lot about Jewish customs, uh, despite having basically only Jewish friends growing up. I don't know a whole lot of their customs. Um, and, you know, they didn't really know a whole lot about mine either, besides the fact that, you know, we had a tree in our house for, uh, for a month out of the year. Uh, back to Damien, he says, I've also seen people critical of Storm's presentation. One of the writers at Women Write About Comics did an article drawing attention to how pale Storm is colored. Back in the Cockrum days, she was established as a dark-skinned black woman, and in Marauders, she's being colored as exceptionally light-skinned. This seems particularly sad when, as you said, her characterization is so much better than in recent runs. Yeah, um... I can't say that Storm's skin tone was something I noticed. Uh, Then again, it's not something I would focus on. Uh, I did definitely enjoy her characterization here because characterization is something I'd focus on. I'm, you know, there's a, there's a currency to being outraged and to foment outrage. And uh, to me, life's a little too short for that. Uh, I like the way she was characterized is all I can say about it. Um, it yeah, moving on. 
<laughs> Back to Damien's email. Uh, one of my favorite things about this issue is the echo of the Professor Xavier's a jerk panel in the splash where she announces the team name. And I didn't even notice that. That's a great callback and, uh, and a great eye. Uh, my favorite thing about Marauders is the setup. In many ways, it reminds me of the Austria- Australia era when the X-Men would travel around helping different people. The human versus mutant element makes it feel very X-Men-y. And yeah, totally. This might be like the purest X-Men book of the Dawn of X launch. It's like the only one that actually screamed X-Men to me. Um, you know, Marauders and New Mutants, actually. But, of course, in New Mutants' case, it screamed New Mutants at me. <laughs> uh, Damien continues, The covers are pretty amazing as well. Russell Dowderman manages to create covers that are iconic pin-up pieces, as Marvel seems to like, but also which tells part of the story, which is my preference. And yes, this had very strong and striking cover. Um, and in filing subsequent issues into like reading order, I've noticed that, again, it's Marauders and New Mutants that seem to have the most creative covers of this run so far. They definitely stand out as being special. Uh, back to Damien, he says, Altogether, this is by far my favorite D.O.X. book. I can't wait for you to read what's coming up. It gets better and better. Uh, I completely forgot to mention my theory for why Kitty can't go through the gates. Mora is trying to keep herself hidden. Kitty's power could find her hiding place, so Mora has somehow got Krakoa to block her. The only problem with this theory is that Doug would have to be in on it, which seems unlikely considering his friendship with Kitty. Which is an awesome theory that I hadn't thought of. Um, it stands to reason that Kitty can get into places that most others couldn't, so you know, keeping her at uh, arm's reach or even you know, past arm's reach is probably a very good play for Mora. That's a, an awesome point that I, you know, I'm. You see, I, like I said, I, I see symbols where they don't exist, and uh, when things are like when things almost make too much sense, I totally miss them. So thank you so much for your message, Damien. Um, I really appreciate you keeping up with the show, uh, especially in this new era where we're post hoxpox. So thank you so much. Um, we got a message from Lamar uh, on Twitter. He is uh, reading along with the collected editions, those anthology books that we talked about, and he says, Dawn of X Volume 1 was okay. The shoe came down in X-Force. New Mutants was pretty good. I think I liked that the most next to X-Men and Marauders. Excalibur and Fallen Angels were passable, which, yeah, <laughs> that... Uh, uh, Excalibur and Fallen Angels, definitely. The two Betsy books, or the two Psylocke books, because you know, well, one of them isn't Betsy. Uh, the two Psylocke-ish books are the ones that were towards the bottom for me as well. Uh, thank you so much for following along, Lamar. I, I, uh, I hope you're not regretting spending that money on the anthologies. Um, Pat Sampson of the Longbox Crusade, he says, I just binged X-Lapsed episodes 13 through 17 today while doing work around the house. Really enjoying discovering current X-Men through you. Well, thank you so much, Pat. Uh, it really means a lot. I, you know, the the idea that I'm helping, you know, keep people company while they're doing other things that that just uh, that makes me a lot happier than maybe it should. <laughs> I think it's one of the cooler things about this sort of uh, this sort of uh, media of podcasting here. It's you know, I I get to go along with people just like people get to go along with me. It's uh, it's really cool, and uh, when you get that reminder every now and again, it. Uh, really does a lot to bolster your your spirits and make you make you see value in what you do so thank you so much for that uh, that message there uh, it came at a time i really needed it so thank you and uh, we're gonna wrap up with a message from my good friend walt walt neeland comic reviews by walt and he says 
I just dropped about $70 in online orders for Dawn of X, thanks to you, like 10 minutes ago, and that always makes me nervous. Uh, he says, uh, the HOX, POX, TPB, because I'm OCD, I'm gonna have, if I'm going to have the anthology Dawn of X collections, I need the anthology Hoxpox volume as well. And volume 7, plus I can't find, so maybe I'll have to actually get volumes 2 and 6. Uh, I've been digging X-Lapsed, albeit I'm only up to episode 10, and I'm, I'm sorry I'm putting these out so quick. Uh, I appreciate your behind-the-scenes insight on setting the issues aside and the growing stack of them and taking the plunge, and... That's something I wanted to make sure I mentioned because I think discussing the stacks is something a lot of us can relate to. And it's so weird when I think about it, because I'm, I'm sitting right next to the stack right now. Uh, I actually have all the uh, all of the Dawn of X stuff I haven't gotten to in a short box, and it's almost full. It's almost a complete short box with maybe about four inches of empty space in it. And I, I keep thinking about, like... As like a you know late teen early twenties, I just couldn't wait for Wednesday. You know I couldn't wait to read everything. I'd get home from the shop, I'd read everything that day, and by the time that night was there, I'd be like just chomping for the next Wednesday. I was literally like living between Wednesdays, living for Wednesday, to the point where I mean I'd get annoyed if Christmas caused comic shipments to be pushed back a day late till Thursday. Which is insane to me now because I mean, right now Wednesdays come and go. I get my one monthly package from DCBS that more often than not just sits by the door unopened for a couple weeks. You know, the stacks just add up, and it's it's weird to think about how different things are, and it makes you question things. You know, like are like how much of this is out of habit? How much of this is out of just wanting? To still be a part of something that maybe you're not anymore I, I don't know uh, One of the things that Reggie and I talked about a lot Was uh, the, the addictiveness uh, And the compulsion of collecting And, you know, they say there's no better research than me-search And I think I'd be a, uh, a heck of a case to, uh, to look into Because, yeah, the stacks pile up uh, Back to Walt he says, I've also been approaching your, uh, appreciating your thoughts as well as feedback you've shared on info pages. I have to say my biggest turnoffs to Hickman stuff was the info pages, combined with the Krakoan language and not having a key until halfway into Hoxbox. And I quit at X-Men number one for cover prices, plus info page fatigue, plus solicitations of so many titles bi-weekly. And yeah, the info pages, they're pretty dis- divisive here on the show. Uh, I'm happy... To see that I wasn't completely alone and, and not digging them 100%. I was afraid that I'd get a bit of clapback for expressing my frustration with them. Um, I think since they are so different, I think the novelty of them gives uh, it gives people a pa- people give it a pass because it's so novel. Where I just saw it as you know I was counting how many pennies each page cost. You know, so that that kind of. It's one of those things I just couldn't let go of, um, much to, uh, you know, much of the obvious, you know, complaints that I made. Uh, cover prices and the twice-monthly shipping of the early books, I totally get it. Um, you're a lot like me where it's all or nothing, so I can definitely see quitting with, uh, with you know, the dawning of the Dawn of X. I could totally get that, and, I mean, just look at the first month. Uh, that's like 60 bucks on just X-Books in a month that... 
I think, what, only two of them were by Hickman? Or or two of each one, so about four of them were were by Hickman. So it was a lot of different voices with this new Dawn of X era, and, I mean, two issues of Fallen Angels, which is weird. (laughs) But, yeah, I could totally see that. Uh, Back to Walt. He says, of course, as said, and I appreciate the shout-out, the DOX Anthology volumes caught me, and I really want to support the format, even though I've not actually been reading them yet. And I tell you, it's not often I give current-year Marvel any sort of credit or props, I guess, but these anthology volumes, brilliant idea. Brilliant idea. I've said it before, and I'm sure I'll say it again. It's a great and easy way to follow along. You can get them real cheap at in-stock trades, like 40% off, and it gives... It kind of gives the entire Dawn of X run, like, a kind of evergreen feel, you know? Because you're not just collecting the first six issues of X-Men. You're, you're actually collecting the first six issues, or I don't know how many issues are in each anthology. I'm assuming it's six, maybe 12 for the first one, or maybe it's maybe the first one's broken up. But, I mean, it just makes it feel like you're experiencing this the way it was intended to. You're not just picking little bits out. It's uh, pretty cool. And, uh, you know, as for... Buying them all individually I can't tell you how Even just ordering the books on DCBS It's a real pain in the ass (laughs) Not only do I have to dodge variant covers Which there are many, many, many And reprints Because DCBS will offer reprints And also resolicits Um, I also gotta make sure I know which books are double shipping For the month Which means I have to look at solicitations Which I don't like to do uh, so far in this journey, I think, I want to say I messed up like two or three times ordering on DCBS and actually had to go to the shop to pick up something that I missed or I might have accidentally ordered two copies of the same book because I mistook a variant for the next issue and uh, it's a real pain and uh, I mean, it, this is a total first world problem, you know, but I dread doing the order every month because it's it's really a pain and I'm always worried that I'm going to miss something, I'm always worried that I'm going to order two of something, it's... It's not the uh, it's it's not the friendliest, uh, and it's not DCBS's fault. It's just what Marvel's putting out on the table. It's it's really hard to follow. Uh, back to Walt, he says, pretty sure X Lapsed is going to get me to take the plunge soon, especially being able to binge read a bit, whether I go in order through each TPB or cycle through each title within. I'm worried about Marvel not keeping up on the Dawn of X volumes, but in looking at Amazon, it looks like there are placeholders to at least volume 16 or so, and that seemed to include the giant-sized Storm issue and some Empire thing. And yet, that's... uh, Current year, that's a risk with Marvel and DC, because not only do they relaunch comics willy-nilly, they also relaunch collected editions by numbers and, and trade dresses and spines... And then they just stop them on occasion. You know, they'll just cancel it. I, I hope that for the foreseeable future, they'll be able to keep, you know, Dawn of X anthologies going. Hopefully, you know, best case scenario for the whole run. Um, I think right now it's kind of hard to say which, one way or another because, you know, we are, we are still in the pandemic and put such a crimp on publication. So maybe we'll start seeing the lasting effects pretty soon of whether or not they're going to keep coming out. Hopefully they do. I, I don't see any reason to say they wouldn't. Um, then again, I'd also haven't been looking at sales figures. Um, back to Walt, he says, "While that makes me think they'll fall behind, I'll suck it up and accept it for the format." 
Though it occurs to me, as well as jogs my memory that you mentioned it in one of the X-Lapsed episodes, some of these should be on Marvel Unlimited by now, so I can have the anthologies for print edition series, and uh, at least for the first few issues of the new books, I should be able to read via Marvel Unlimited. And yes, definitely, I'll remind everyone that, I mean, I think it's, what, six months until it pops up on Marvel Unlimited? So, I mean, you could read everything on there and be way further ahead than I am right now. So, it's a definitely a viable and cost-efficient option if if you can do digital. I can't do digital, but uh, if you can, hey, it's there. And uh, if you're already paying for it, you already, you know... You already own the license to it. You don't own it, but I mean, you, you can you can check it out and follow along and all that good stuff. So, thank you so much, Walt. I really it really means a lot that you're following along, and I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on on the stories. I want to hear some of your thoughts on on House of X, Powers of X, and these early Dawn of Xs. So, and of course, that goes for everybody. I'd love to hear everybody's thoughts, uh, even time travelers. If you didn't discover this show for several months. Still want to know what you thought about it because uh, it's still something worth talking about. <laughs> now, if you do want to reach out, you can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. Uh, you can find show notes at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com or xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com. Also, the audio archives are available at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You can find all the programs. Uh, we just broke 350 episodes of uh, the combined, you know, programs there. So, a lot to listen to if you uh, if you like the uh, cut of my jib. And, uh, hey, why wouldn't you, right? Uh, now, I think that's where I'll leave it today. I want to thank everybody so, so much for hanging out, even as we get into these uh, difficult second issues uh, of Dawn of X. It really means a lot that there are listeners and uh, folks willing to reach out to chat me up. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 20 of X-Lapsed, and this is a, uh, a special late evening edition, or at least late evening recording. Uh, I'm trying to find a time to record this show where uh, 
the air conditioner doesn't kick on every five minutes. So <laughs> I'm going a little bit later in the evening. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I am living in Arizona. And uh, one thing about Arizona, even at the end of September, it is very, very hot. Uh, we are still over 100 degrees Fahrenheit here and will be if the uh, if the Weather Channel app is right for uh, at least another week or so. So, yeah, this is a little bit late in the evening. And uh, hopefully <laughs> you won't be hearing uh, my roaring air conditioner. Uh, at least as often as uh, as you might in previous episodes, but uh, we got uh, well, we got a banger today. Uh, this is, uh, of course, episode number twenty. We are discussing Excalibur number two, or Excalibur volume four, number two, perhaps, uh, January twenty twenty cover date. The story is called Verse Two: A Tower of Flowers. Written by Teeny Howard, art by Marcus Toe, colors by Eric Archaniga. Let is VC's Corey Petit, design Tom Muller, head of X, Hickman edits Bisa White Sabolski, cover price $3.99 American, on sale November 20th, 2019. Let's hop right in. We open up in flashback land, and it's uh, the 4th century BC, or BCE if you prefer, and uh, a set of mutant twins is uh, preparing to set sail on the English Channel in a tiny ramshackle raft. Once they get going, they don't make it very far because, uh, well, they suck at making rafts. Apocalypse, we can still call him that since this is a flashback, he watches as they dip into the drink and drown. He does nothing to help them because, you know, survival of the fittest and whatnot. I, uh, I find it interesting, not, not so much interesting, but uh, they do make sure to say 4th century BCE here. And uh, I... Uh, when I went back to college, it was around 2011, or it was not around 2011, it was in 2011. And uh, they were in the process of, like, updating all of the texts from B.C. to B.C.E. at that point. And I remember a lot of people being very annoyed. Um, and then people being annoyed at the people who were annoyed. And it just became this cluster of people annoyed at everybody for, I guess, at the end of the day, they forgot the reason why they were annoyed. But uh, anytime I see B.C.E., I'm always, I always, I'm always reminded of my... Of my return to academia and uh, the little, you know, you know, little uproar that uh, that I faced there, and I, all I wanted to do was read my book and, and take my tests and write my papers and, and just get the hell out. But uh, other people were uh, very, very into the argument. But uh, let's move on. Now to the present, our Excalibur crew is on Kitty Pride's boat, and they actually call her Kate. So how about that? I am still going to call her Kitty. Uh, they are in the Atlantic, off the coast of Cromwell, England. Now, Kitty's all excited to see the old Excalibur lighthouse and says she hasn't seen it since the last time they blew it up. And now, as part of another show on this channel, From Claremont to Claremont, an X-Men podcast, we read the issue not too long ago where TechNet sent hard-boiled Howie, or Henry, <laughs> into the lighthouse to blow it up. So I wonder if that's what she's talking about. I think that was Excalibur number 42. Uh, from uh, 1991, because after that they got like the the high tech um, sort of look, mushroom looking uh, lighthouse that TechNet helped them build. But uh, but I wonder if that's what she's talking about here. Anyway, let's meet our cast. We have Captain Britain, who's Betsy. We have Apocalypse, who is not called A here. Jubilee, Rogue, Gambit, Shogo, and Kate Pride. Uh, Double page spread of creds, then back to comics. Now, Gambit is still fretting about Rogue being, well, you know, all comatose and floral. 
Uh, Jubilee expresses some concern about Shogo being left on Krakoa. Now, she claims that Todd is safe, hidden away from the hands of Apocalypse. She further claims that Shogo is also safe from Gambit, whatever that implies. Um, suddenly, the boat is overcome by... Selkies? Oh, come on. Uh, Betsy informs the team that the Selkies are from an old Scottish story, and they are, quote, a sort of seal people. And, uh, and so they fight. Uh, Betsy finally deduces that it's her thereafter, and to draw them away from Kitty's tub, she dives into the drink. Then, like a moment later, she's up on the cra- uh, crag of rock. Then she TKs the rest of the team, minus Kitty, to the rock with her, and Kitty sails to safety as intended. Now, the Selkies, being seal people, cannot climb the crags, and so the, teal- the team is safe for now. There is, however, no Excalibur lighthouse here, which is sort of suspect because they thought it was going to be here. From here, our trio, Betsy, Jubilee, and Gambit, they each pick up an end of floral slumberette rogue, and they head toward the top of the crags. Why they don't just TK her there? I don't know, it was good enough to get her off the boat. Oh well. Suddenly, Captain Britton notices a whole slew of cloaked figures walking ahead of them, and uh, she is the only one who can see them. She rushes up to one to ask who they are and where the lighthouse went. And she's clued into the existence of the dread Mariana Stern. I know what you're thinking. No, no, not Mariana Stern. That sounds like the scariest PTA mom you'd ever meet. Uh, now Stern is, uh, you know, the she's part of that coven that we we saw her at the end of last issue of Excalibur, where she ran up the stairs and all that stuff. She had the the crystals, right? Now Stern, we hear, gets her powers from Morgan or Morgane, however they're spelling it here. Morgan Le Fay, of course. Uh, now, the druid then tells Betsy they will allow her to plant some Krakoan fruit here in order to protect the land. Betsy reports this to all her teammates and confirms that Morgan's agents have burned down her family's castle. Uh, Gambit ain't buying it, and he just kind of assumes she's having a fit or something. And uh, it's always interesting seeing the cynic in a story that's, like, completely based in magic and mysticism. It's like, have you not seen everything else that's gone on here, Gambit? You just fought Selkies. And, and this is where you draw the line. Anywho, they set Rogue down atop the crags, where suddenly her floral tomb grows into a brand new lighthouse-looking thing. Now, Gambit worries that the light atop the lighthouse is Rogue. Uh, well, let's have us an info page, straight from the grimoire of A. It's a, well, it's a schematic of a lighthouse, sort of. Uh, there's some mention of those dead twins from the opening flashback, uh... Maybe they've been reformed into crystals? I, I don't know. This is really... This ain't my kind of story, and it's uh, it's losing me. Um, now, inside, we get a scene of our trio of X, X-Men slash Excaliburites chatting, which, I mean, these are my favorite sorts of scenes. Uh, I love these scenes where uh, where the, the team just talks, and uh, we get to see them converse and uh, interface, you know? Now, this one, it's not half bad. They're all sort of on edge, and they're snipping at one another. Uh, Gambit's still freaking out about Rogue. Jubilee's still worried about Shogo. Betsy's just trying to figure out what in the hell's exactly going on here. They all ultimately decide to, you know, give it a sleep. They're going to try and get some sleep, figure it out in the morning. Later, Jubilee wakes up only to find A holding Shogo. She rushes toward him, but is frozen in her tracks. He notes that Shogo is human, and uh, he might not be too keen on a human living in his mutant paradise. 
Okay, so Shogo is human then. I, I could have sworn I saw him floating at some point, but maybe he was just caught up in somebody's telekinesis bubble or something. I don't know. Or maybe, just maybe, I was actually confusing him with Joy Boy from uh, TechNet. Who knows? Uh, this is ultimately revealed as having been Jubilee's nightmare. So Jubilee actually wakes up, gets out of bed, and she sneaks out of the lighthouse. We just had one dream, let's have another. This one, Captain Britain's. Now, she's in a field following a flaming wolf with a sword on its back. They come to a statue of A. It holds a fruit-filled plate with the words, He will use us, dash, we can use him, etched on it. Betsy takes a piece of melon or something off the plate and bites into it. Uh, The flaming fox, or wolf, tells her she can trust it before Betsy is stirred awake by Shogo eating her hair. You see, after her nightmare, Jubilee snuck back through a Krakoan portal to pick up the tot. Though, she promises to drop him off again when the going gets tough, which, duh, it soon will. Now, Betsy, Jubilee, and Gambit head to the top of the lighthouse. Uh, Seems like they all had pretty weird dreams, though we're not privy to Remy's. Uh, Jubilee and Gambit talk a bit more about their worries, to the point where the latter has to make it clear that, you know, this isn't a competition, you know, to see who has the bigger problems here. We're not in a contest. Uh, then, the druids show up again. And uh, we have uh, Betsy goes to greet them, and she's informed that the enemy is the coven Akaba, Akaba, however you say that. Of course, now, Akaba is not an unfamiliar term for us here. Uh, Mora was, you know, Mother Akaba in a life, uh, her ninth life in the uh, year 100. Uh, the druids, they yak on for a bit until the coven descends upon them, and, uh, well, of course, they fight. Now, Captain Britain keeps on keeping on when suddenly the voice of A floods her head. She asks if, uh, he asks if she needs his aid. She says no. He reminds her that her brother is still being corrupted by Morgan La. She still says no. He then tells her that Coven Akaba used to report to him. They were ordinary humans who used magic to put them on par with Homo Superior. They thought that this would cause A to spare them. And it did not. Oh, and also, A himself might be responsible for that Krakoan gate in the Avalon pool and other world that we saw last issue. He again asks if she needs his help, and she is not keen on giving him the big thumbs up, but, I mean, at this point, it feels like she's really running out of tricks. Now, A vows to protect the lighthouse while Betsy and the gang head into Otherworld to shut down Morgan. Betsy still refuses to enlist his aid. Before we know it, A arrives anyway, and uh, the first person to see him is Jubilee, and she is none too pleased. A approaches Captain Britain and tells her it's time for her to do the whole, you know, otherworld thing to save Brian. And uh, she insists, still, she doesn't want his help. He manifests a giant glowing hammer and assures her that the lighthouse will remain standing while she's away. Betsy finally relents, and she begins begging Gambit and Jubilee to accompany her. Neither of them want to go, you know, since Gambit doesn't want to leave Rogue, and Jubilee damn sure doesn't want to leave Shogo with the big blue bad guy. Uh, Betsy manages to convince them. You know, they, they can't do anything about Rogue, but it looks like Shogo might actually be going with them to Otherworld, um, maybe by way of Krakoa. Who knows? Uh, now we wrap up with the trio stepping through the portal, and on the other side, Jubilee realizes that she's no longer holding the baby. Just then, a giant green flame-breathing dragon appears, and it says Shogo, which is, of course, the only word Shogo knows how to say. Okay. Uh, Now, the issue closes with a waste of an info page that just gives us the lyrics to a druid lullaby. Um, 
I did the, you know, the requisite quoted Google search to confirm whether or not this was a real Druid lullaby, and nothing came up except this issue, so I'm guessing it's not real. But that's, uh, that's Excalibur number two. So, uh, I've got a question. Uh, where's my X-Men comic at? Um, I'm trying to be as optimistic as possible here, you know, uh, trying to take things as they come, leave all my preconceptions behind, but, uh, what is this? Selkies? Druids? Uh, have we stumbled into a D&D campaign? Um, I hope this isn't how the entire series is going to go, and I hope that this isn't informing in any way what X of Swords is going to be. I really want more characterization. I want more time with these people without this, like, weird magic overtone. Um, and I don't want to slight the creative team, and I don't want to say this was bad, because it's not. It's just not for me. Uh, this is not a take on the X-Men that I necessarily need. Um, thinking back, I'm reminded a bit of... Oh boy, what was it? What the, what the guy from Conan? Uh, Kulan Goth. Kulan Gath. Uh, there was a story, an X-Men issue, a couple of X-Men issues, uh, probably around like the 180s, um, with Kulan Gath in it. And X-Fans seem like really split on that story. Some absolutely adore it. While others, like me, like might just skip it entirely during their X-Men rereads. Uh, this just isn't the sort of like trapping that I want to see the X-Men in. And again, no fault of the creative. Uh, just a story that's barking up the wrong tree when it comes to my own personal tastes. Um, not, not the kind of thing I'm looking for, unfortunately. That said, I love the art. Uh, Marcus Toes or two. I gotta figure out how to say his name. Marcus's work really pops off the page here. Uh, he made a story that, you know, as mentioned, was pretty uninteresting to me. He seemed very visually appealing. Um, let, let's keep on the side of positivity for a little bit. Let's talk about his uh, place among this team, uh, unofficial or not, or official or not, I guess. There's one aspect of the story that really shines to me. Um, He's a very tricky character. He's just he's very, very, very tricky. Um, I mean, let's take, let's take the the between the between the covers thing out of here for a second. Now, do we as readers trust him? Should we trust him? I mean, is he being honest and truthful that he only has the mutant's best interest at heart, or is he in this for himself? I mean. I hate to go to the old, uh, the old Chris Chestnut here, but are there more shoes left to drop, you know? Um, now, just like us, to, let's take it into the book here. The other characters in the book have this trepidation towards him, you know? Uh, Betsy flat-out refuses his aid until there's, like, just, she's absolutely left with no other choice, right? He basically shoved her through the portal when you think about it. It's clear that A.E. has his own machinations and motivations, but, uh... I gotta say, it's been a really good time trying to trying to like suss them out uh, along with the rest of the cast. Uh, if I'm gonna give this uh, this issue high marks on anything, this would be it. This is definitely the strongest part of the issue by far for me. Um, I did enjoy the brief bits of interaction between Gambit, Jubilee, and Betsy, though. As mentioned, they were very very brief, and they were also kind of bitey at one another, which. It can work, right? You know, that, that sort of thing can work. I've, we've, I think we've all read issues where, you know, two characters on the same team are in the middle of an argument, and, uh, and, and they're just, you know, 
debating. And that, that can work. And that can work with the X-Men. That can work with these three characters. But here, it just felt a bit repetitive. I mean, how many times on a single page do we need to confirm that Gambit's upset and worried about Rogue? It's like, dude, we get it. You said it two panels ago. And you said it two panels before that. And you're going to say it in two panels from now. Very repetitive. Um, also, Betsy's got like this weird aloofness that seemed a bit off-putting. Um, where she's kind... I mean, she's got a lot on her plate, right? But still, she's kind of dismissive of Gambit and Jubilee's worries. Uh, no matter how many times they explain them. Because they explain them quite often. But she was just kind of dismissive of it. And... Uh, I don't know how I feel about that. Overall, um, this wasn't my favorite. And I can't say as I'm looking forward to seeing these characters fight the big Shogo dragon next issue, which I'm assuming is going to happen, or I I can't even hazard a guess. But uh, <laughs> this is uh, not my kind of X-Men story, um, unfortunately. Uh, it, it does a lot of things right, but it also does a lot of things that I just don't care about. Now, uh, that is Excalibur number two, and uh, before I let you go, let's touch on a little bit of feedback. We got a letter from Damien, which, as luck would have it, is discussing the last issue of Excalibur from episode, uh, what would it have been, 15? Episode 15, Excalibur number one. Now, Damien says, Excalibur is a difficult book for me. I have a certain amount of affection for some of the characters, and I like to see comics set in the U.K., but a lot of the characters in this team have been broken by continuity. Rogue was one of my favorite X-Men right up until that Jim Lee issue where she throws herself at Gambit at a picnic. I know I lost this battle decades ago, but I really can't see the Rogue I knew falling for Gambit. And uh, that's, uh, that's actually an issue. Uh, that's X-Men Volume 2, Number 8, that I did a long-form episode of Chris's on Infinite Earths on. Well, it was... Originally an episode of Remarvel Before I folded all of the Remarvels Into my Chris's on Infinite Earths Legacy number uh, Thanks for the idea there, Marvel uh, It's episode 40 in the archives If anybody's interested um, Now that's that issue and story is very special to me Though, you know, I it's worth noting That I did come into comics around this time And so it really informed my takes On characters like Rogue and Gambit so I didn't have the years of familiarity with them, a rogue specifically, that, that you did. It's also a, a notable issue for me because this this issue, X-Men Volume 2, Number 8, was my first ever, you know, white whale, my comics white whale. I searched for this thing for a couple of years before I found it. I was able to find everything I wanted except for X-Men Number 8. And uh, that search... For this issue is a big part of that episode, episode 40 of Chris's on Infinite Earths. Uh, I mean, while I'm while I'm plugging myself <clears throat> in front of everybody, uh, for those who've never listened to like the the Chris's on Infinite Earths show, those are sort of like half and half shows. Uh, they usually open with me telling an anecdote that could uh, either be like serious and personal, or you know, just plain silly. Then I tenuously tie that anecdote into a comic book. Um, I think I've uh, I think I've described those episodes as emotional shiatsu massages because <laughs> I uh, I come away from them pretty much completely drained and, and usually in some kind of pain. Uh, it, it's great fun though. So if you if you haven't listened to a Chris show, uh, well, this little plug probably won't inspire you to. But they're there if you want them. And uh, that episode in particular, Chris's on Infinite Earths, episode number forty in the archives. 
Now back to Damien's message. He says, I really enjoy the Captain Britain mythos. The Alan Davis issues where Betsy became the captain and lost her eyes were fantastic. The idea of her reclaiming that role and succeeding this time is very appealing. And I think these were before my time. My, you know, strictly UK Captain Britain comics knowledge is pretty sparse. I have to admit that. It's really confined to the to the Alan Moore collection that Marvel put out, like right after Jemis and Casada took over, uh, where they famously like they did the one thing Alan Moore asked them not to do, or they didn't do the one thing he did ask them to do. They left his they left his uh, name out of the Indicia as a like a creator. Um, so that was a that was you know I think that was the olive branch that didn't quite make its way to uh, to Alan Moore from Marvel, uh, turn of the century Marvel. So. I read that, and I also read an Alice da- Alan Davis collection from probably, boy, when was that? Um, the collection was probably from the mid-90s, so somewhere before then, I guess. I, I too, really enjoyed them both. Um, and actually, that Alan Moore, uh, the Fury storyline, was actually set to be a long-form episode of the Cosmic Treadmill that I was really looking forward to doing, because uh, that one, that's a that's a story that... You know, people, when you think about Alan Moore, people pick out things like, you know, like Watchmen and stuff and uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and uh, V for Vendetta as their favorites. And mine uh, are Miracle Man or Marvel Man and uh, the Captain Britain stuff here because somehow he was able to turn this character, the Fury, who you'd never seen before and you only saw like once again uh, when Claremont came back in uh, the mid 2000s. Uh, that he turned this Fury character into something that was actually scary, you know? And I had no reason to think that Captain Britain wasn't going to survive, but, you know, when you're reading it, you had doubts. It was so well done. So well done. Uh, Back to uh, Damien. He says, uh, Apocalypse has been fascinating fascinating in Hoxpox, so I wanted to see what happened next. And 100% agreed. Uh, Apocalypse bits have been some of the most interesting stuff so far. Uh, in, in this issue, that's you know my favorite part of this issue is the uh, is the weirdness around Apocalypse. Now, uh, Jubilee, oh, back to Damien. He says Jubilee had been slightly rescued in the Generation X run by Christina Strain, where they removed her vampire curse, but also maneuvered her into a mentorship role. And uh, I dropped that Legacy era Generation X series like a hot rock. <laughs> Did not like it. Uh, I was so excited for it, too. Um, you know, Generation X was like my New Mutants title, you know. Uh, came out in, what, 94-ish, 95-ish. All the characters were my age. You know, I was 14, 15 years old, and I, I just loved it. Uh, also, Generation X was my first, like, real exposure to the work of Chris Bacciolo, or Bacciolo, another guy whose name I can't say, but I can read it and I can type it on a screen, I just can't say it. Uh, so, uh, uh, Chris Bacciolo, uh, however you say that, is uh, definitely in, like, my top three all-time comics artists. I just absolutely adore his work. Uh, one thing about it is it always reminds me of Autumn, which, I don't know, makes me feel happy inside for some reason. Uh, back to Damien, he says, uh, Marcus Toe, or Two, is a great artist. I remember seeing his early work thinking, here's another sub-Majuara manga artist, but he's really grown into a phenomenal talent. Teeny Howard has written stuff I enjoyed too, so that was hopeful. Unfortunately, they fell into every trap I saw ahead. I became more and more convinced that Americans should not be allowed to write comics set in the UK. 
Creating stories that combine Arthurian legend with the modern UK is not easy. And the thing, of, the thing of it is, with me personally, I couldn't even tell you if a comic of that stripe is good or bad, because to me, it's just it's just not my kind of comic. Um, uh, back to Damien, he says, Paul Cornell managed it with MI-13, and Kieran Gillen managed with Once and Future, but most fail. Even Alan Davis chose to make Merlin and Roma into sci-fi characters to make it work. I have to admire the bravery of attempting to try and combine all these things, but I just can't accept stories where my homeland is presented as being a place where the Queen and Captain Britain are keeping us safe from evil witches and druids. And (laughs) I never considered that, you know? You look at this, and, I mean, it is kind of a distillation of, like, things American think when they think of England or (laughs) or the UK. It's... I, I can totally absolutely appreciate how that might be off-putting and that's just not something i ever considered but i mean it is they're kind of like going the low-hanging fruit here right um i never i never considered that it's it reminds me if if anybody listening is like into anime or manga um whenever they want to do like the american stereotype they just they always have us like depicted as cowboys so (laughs) i can get i get that that's a bit annoying um yeah, that is, that, that's funny. I never thought about that. Um, now, uh, to wrap up Damien's message, he says, By the way, I demand you keep saying Apocalypse new name like that. I like to imagine he's using his shape-changing powers to do the most enormous Fonz-esque thumbs, thumbs up every time you say it. And so, yes, the uh, the Nick from Family Ties slash Arthur Fonzarelli A will remain, because, uh, I mean, this is an Arthurian story after all, right? And, we have an Arthurian Fonzarelli, uh, but uh, thank you so much for your uh, for your message, Damien. I love hearing from you, and uh, I, I love your insight because uh, you're you're picking, you're, you're showing me things I miss, and you're telling me uh, you're, you're going through your prism. Looking at a book like this is uh, is fascinating to me because you're picking up things that I wouldn't even think twice about. So thank you so much for your message. Uh, We'll wrap up today with a short uh, excerpt from a conversation I had with my buddy Walt, uh, Walt Nealon from Comics Reviews by Walt. Uh, This is a reference to an episode where we talked a little bit about uh, the illegitimacy of the, uh, I think, what did they call it, the missing decade or whatever, uh, the post-Avengers vs. X-Men stuff. Now, Walt says, the post-AVX's illegitimacy, I can see that. I read a bit into the now stage, but I'd be quite content to go AVX to Hox Pox Docs. Um, and uh, the reason I'm including this here is because it gave me this weird mental exercise where I was trying to see what like value-added stories we've gotten since AVX until Hox Pox Docs. And uh, I'm having a hard time. Uh, I... You know, as much as I hate, like, the whole meta-commentary in comics, or I don't hate it. I just think it can be over-relied on and maybe a little too cute at times. But they uh, there was that, that uh, panel in one of the Hoxpox issues that had the Phoenix Five. You know, you had Cyclops, Namor, Magic Colossus, and uh, the White Queen in their Phoenix attire, you know, in, that toward the end of uh, Avengers vs. X-Men. And they called it something like the Missing Decade or the Lost Decade. And... Uh, I think I made a remark about how you know, I wouldn't mind if that was actually a lost decade. And with Walt's comment here, I'm trying to think if there's anything 
anything worth saving since AVX. You know, I thought like, oh yeah, well, I, I enjoyed Wolverine versus the X- Wolverine versus Wolverine and the X Men, but that actually came first. That came before AVX. That actually led into AVX. And uh, I'm trying to think if there's a single thing about the X Men I would like to hold on to uh, between what was it, 2012 and 2019, and I can't, I can't think of a damn thing. Uh, I will admit that I was a fan of, like, the first, maybe first dozen issues of all new X-Men, the Bendis stuff with the uh, the original five coming up from the past. I thought it was novel, and I just enjoyed, I enjoyed the take. Uh, it wasn't until, like, the voices of all these characters kind of, kind of shifted, you know, um, to, I don't know, they didn't feel like... When they came, they kind of felt like themselves, right? You know, uh, you had Cyclops, who was like this sort of... He was the leader, of course, but he had this youthfulness to him where he was uncertain of himself. Uh, you know, they all just felt like they were literally yanked out of an issue of, uh, you know, the first 66, right? Then something changed. <laughs> and it, they, I think it's safe to say they overstayed their welcome. I think Marvel might have been a little surprised that it was as successful as it was, relatively speaking, because, I mean, the X-Men were not a top priority. Um, But it was good, clean fun at first, right? Um, It was just an interesting little take here, and I wasn't expecting it to last for, I mean, it lasted for, what, six years? These other characters were here? Ridiculous. But uh, I'm trying to think of anything else I'd keep. Um, I enjoyed Jeff Lemire's extraordinary X-Men run Not not all of it Because a lot of it was tied up in, in crossovers But what wasn't tied up in crossovers I enjoyed um, But other than that Boy <laughs> Maybe we can call this a lost decade Because uh, I can't think of any If anyone listening has any anything to point to You know, from... From AVX to Hox Pox Docs, that's worth reading. You know, outside of the stuff that's leading up to House of X, Dawn of X, uh, like, you know, Andrew and Belfa- Belfast mentioned uh, the Extermination uh, miniseries that, I, that I'm going to be, I'm going to hopefully be reading pretty soon. I've got the trade here. Um, also, the Resurrection of Phoenix, that miniseries I've heard a lot of good things about. But other than that, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss. So, uh, yeah, if, uh, if you agree, disagree, let me know. Let me know what, uh, what your thoughts are on the, you know, the quote, lost decade. Uh, what you guys liked, maybe what you guys didn't like. Maybe you agree and just be like, eh, let's get rid of it. Let's jettison the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to hear. Uh, so, on that note, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find show notes and all the uh, stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also the xlapsed page, xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. If you want to chat us up on Facebook, 90s X-Men is the group, where you can find uh, me and a bunch of people who talk about X-Men sometimes. So if you're interested in joining the conversation, please feel free. The complete audio archives for the Chris and Reggie channel are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Current shows going on. We still have Moratory Mondays for a few more weeks until we uh, wrap that that show up. Uh, The latest episode had a wonderful part one of a QA and a we had with uh, the original artist of Strikeforce Moratory and the co-creator, Brent Anderson. I think that's... uh, 
A lot of really good information there. A lot of fun getting those answers and being able to share them with the listener. So if that's something you might want to hear, it's there for you. ChrisandReggie.Podbean.com But I think that's all I got for you today. Uh, The next episode, we will be taking a look at Marauders number 2, which I am very, very, very much looking forward to. So, till then, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 21 of Axe Lapsed. And uh, this is a, a weird episode because, uh, you, well, you won't be able to tell from listening to it because uh, the, the episodes are still coming out every day, but I've been banking these, right? I've been, even on days where an episode doesn't come out because we got something else cooking here at the channel, I'm still recording an episode, you know? And uh, with this episode, I actually skipped a day um, because... I wasn't quite sure how to compile my thoughts on it, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in our you know little talking time segment at the end here or toward the end. Um, this is Marauders number two. Now Marauders number one was uh, you know teeter tottering at the top of my uh, you know best of the issue ones uh, pile uh, alongside New Mutants. So let's see if uh, if it holds its position or if maybe it uh, maybe it doesn't. Um, let's get right into it. Marauders number 2, January 2020 cover date. The story is called The Red Coronation. Written by Jerry Duggan, with art by Matteo Lali. Colors by Federico Blee. The letters VCs Corey Petit. Designs Tom Muller, head of X Hickman. Edits Robinson White Sobolski. Cover price $3.99. Went on sale November 20th, 2019. And, uh, well, this issue, uh has what you might call like a spoilery cover, uh, though the events uh, that are about to be revealed hardly feel like a big gotcha because it's uh, been pretty well alluded to up to this point. Um, the cover has uh, 
Sebastian Shaw and Emma Frost stood before like a little like a war room table, you know, and they're pushing pieces around. And one of them is a giant red, you know, boat front with a kitty on it. And we're looking to fill a red seat, put two and two together, and uh, I think we can figure this one out. We don't need uh, Sherlock Holmes for this one. Anyway, we open her up, and the first thing we see is our roll call for uh, this second issue. So let's meet the folks. Emma Frost, Sebastian Shaw, Kate Pride, Lockheed, Pyro, Iceman, and Storm. Huh, I guess we're not getting a Bishop appearance this time out, huh? Uh, from here, double page spread a cred, and then the in- an info page. <laughs> now, this info page shares some semi-redacted government document uh, chronicling the adventures or exploits of the Marauders up to this point. Whoever is writing this is doing so from somewhere called the X-Desk, and they're not all that happy about what's going on. And uh, I'm not all that happy that it's taken us up to our fifth page to get the comics, but what are you going to do? We finally open, and it's Emma Frost telepathically chatting up the Cuckoos. They give her an answer of no, we're not privy to the question, but we might assume. Uh, Remember last issue, we got some sinister secrets that implied that Kitty wasn't the first or second choice for a certain role that's about to be revealed. Now we know Storm was asked and declined, and now it would appear that the Cuckoos were asked as well. Now, Emma's preparing to have a Hellfire Trading Company meeting with her partner Sebastian Shaw, and she ain't looking forward to it. One of the cuckoos suggests it's going to be an absolute S-show. Uh, as we pop back to reality, uh, Emma and Sebastian are having a meeting in London. Emma mentions that it doesn't look like Shaw's doing all that well when it comes to his P&Ls, you know, his profits and losses. A lot of red ink in them books. And uh, we get a lot of mentions of red here. We're getting beaten over the head with red here. They're even drinking red wine. Uh... Now, Shaw is none too pleased by being taken to task by Frost, and he throws it in her face that, you know, she can just stroll into any bank and walk out with, like, all the monies, right? Uh, Emma's like, eh, too bad, so sad, and she reminds him that he's got to keep a neater house. Looks like Shaw's using a non-kitty captained boat to move the merchandise, and it doesn't look like they had all that great a maiden voyage, and uh, we will get there. Uh, The topic of conversation briefly shifts over to that red throne before we shift scenes to the high seas. Now, the Marauders are locked in a battle with a group of goons being led by... (sighs) Batroc the Frickin' Leaper. Do do we still find this guy like LOL Internet Random Funny? I I don't think I ever did, but a lot of folks seem to. I I, I don't know. Uh, Anyway, Kitty and the crew make embarrassingly short work out of the geeks... Our captain phases through to the hold and finds all the merch. It's Krakoan, so uh, looks like Sebastian Shaw, the master manipulator of the Hellfire Club, has entrusted, and has entrusted his shipping routes to Batrock the Friggin' Leaper. Come on. Okay, Batrock, he approaches Kitty to see if there's any way they might work out a deal. You know, split the profits, whatever it takes. Uh, Kitty declines the offer, stating that mutant money now grows on trees, and as such... They really don't need the jack. She then tosses him overboard. Uh, Kitty and company commandeer the boat, leaving Batrock and his geeks on a little life raft. The marauders set sail for Taipei, where Pyro and Iceman proceed to auction off their new boat to the highest local bidder. We hop back to London, where Shaw is absolutely furious that Emma's team screwed his team. And he's also quite upset that Batrock is mad at him. But, but I mean, come on, it's, it's friggin' Batrock, come on. Uh, Shaw warns Emma that things will be different once he installs an ally in the red seat. 
To which Emma informs him that, eh, that seat's already been taken. Uh, she actually took care of all that before she even approached Shaw about a return. All right, so let's see what the kids are up to in Taipei. Kitty's, uh, well, she's getting drunk, which appears to be her gimmick. Uh, the team dances with some locals before running into, hey, it's Bishop. I wonder why he didn't rate for a little box on that roll call page, but uh, what are you going to do? Bishop informs the Marauders that Professor X has been assassinated here. Uh, there's a bit of stunned silence, then Iceman tries to break the ice by assuring everyone that they can believe in the Five to bring him back. Pyro is not so sure. A drunk kitty then wanders into a tattoo shop, which doesn't seem like the best of ideas at this juncture. Uh, now we watch as she gets her, her knuckles tattooed. Storm ain't too pleased, but doesn't really raise any firm objections. Uh, Iceman isn't so sure either. Uh, Bishop comments that he's already got a tattoo, and, you know, it really wasn't his choice to get it. Pyro, on the other hand, plops himself down to get, like, a full-face Punisher skull tattooed on his on his face. I mean, okie doke. Um, now, once the deeds are done, Kitty tosses a wad of cash at the tattooist before forcing a kiss on him. As uh, she leaves, we can see that her knuckles have been tatted with hold and fast. Okay. Now, Emma makes telepathic contact and informs them that Gateway will warp them to London, and so that's exactly what happens. And you know, we, were, we actually referred to a piece, uh, we covered a letter from Damien a couple of episodes back, where he was referring to a piece that criti- criticized the depiction of Storm as being a very light-skinned woman. I said then that I didn't notice it, but let's look at Gateway here for a sec. He, he just looks like a white guy. Like, he doesn't look light-skinned, he looks white-skinned. Very strange. Anywho, they step through the portal and they pop out on board their brand new rig, the Marauder. And, uh, needless to say, they all love their new digs. Kitty goes to leave to attend to some business, which Iceman asks if she's sure she wants to do. Before we know it, we're back at the Frostshaw Consortium, and uh, Emma keeps needling Sebastian to the point where he actually grabs her by the throat and slams her into the wall. Uh, He then tells her that there won't be a Red King, and uh, this sentiment is agreed upon because it's uh, not going to be a Red King, it's going to be a Red Queen. Any any guesses? Any guesses who that Red Queen's going to be? Uh, no? Well, if you said Kitty and a Captain Morgan get up, you'd be right. Oh, and she's also drinking again. Uh, We wrap up with a tree chart of the Hellfire Trading Company with a whole lot of blanks, which tells me we're probably going to be seeing this one a lot as positions get filled in. Uh, At the very top, there's a position called Lord Imperial, and it's listed as vacant. Uh, From Lord Imperial, we get the three royal seats, you know, black, white, and red. And each of those have a bishop and a knight below them. So let's start with the white. The white monarch is Emma Frost, duh. The white bishop is Christian Frost, Emma's brother. The white knight is vacant. The black monarch is, of course, Sebastian Shaw. The black bishop is awaiting accolades. And the black knight is vacant. The Red Monarch is Captain Kate Pride. The Red Bishop is awaiting accolades, but, I mean, it couldn't be as easy as just making it Bishop, right? I guess we'll find out. Uh, the Red Knight is vacant, and that's that. Uh, next up, we've got the New Mutants. But uh, let's uh, let's get a sip of something here, um, alcoholic or otherwise, and discuss what we just read. Now, 
I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I actually sat on this, you know, little talking time bit for a little over a day because I wasn't quite sure how to, how to approach it. Um, and I still don't. <laughs> um, I've got some bullet points here uh, that I'll try to have make some sense here. Um, I, I like the story quite a bit, um, but I'm not completely on board, pun intended, with Kitty. I, she's very off-putting, and uh, I mean a lot of characters are, so that's forgivable, but she's also, and it, it hurts me to say it, she's really, 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 really annoying. Um, I will, let's put a pin in that. Put a pin on that for now. Uh, the Hellfire bits that framed this one were kind of neat, but uh, I, I don't think the intended reaction here was like sympathy for Shaw, but that's what I started to feel. I actually started to feel bad for him. I mean, he's an a-hole, right? We know that. But Emma came across kind of worse. Um, I, I feel like every, you know, aha and gotcha that we got here were completely unearned. I mean, let's look at this here. The deck is already so stacked against Shaw, right? So what's the sport in beating him every time out? There's no sport in that. It's Shaw is a clown, and it's a... Uh, it makes Emma look petty. It makes Shaw look like an idiot. It just... Nobody's coming out of this looking good. It's like, you're not really slipping one past the goalie when the goalie's sleeping at the net, right? And we got Shaw here who is just woefully, you know, uh, unprepared to deal with uh, everything that Emma's already put in place. Uh, let's talk about Batrock for a second. Um, now, anytime I see him in a comic, I... This is me projecting, but I always assume that the writer is sitting there writing, like, rubbing their hands together, waiting for all the memes to start rolling in. Uh, you know? Batroc is like the lame villain du jour is, in my opinion, like 15 years past its sell-by date. Just not funny anymore. If it ever was, which I'm not sure it was. I mean, I know, like, I think he was like a more to the month in Wizard that might have gotten a, you know, a lip curl out of me, but... It's just enough. We get it. He's he's he sucks. We get it. Um, let's talk about the tattoos. Now, cards on the table. I'm not a tattoo person myself. I feel like that's way too big a commitment for me to make. Um, I you know I was I was dating my wife for near a decade before proposing. So, <laughs> you know, it's commitment is uh, you know, knowing something will be on my body forever. It's just not not something I'm gonna do. Uh, you know, if, if that's your thing, that's cool, but not not my uh, not my deal. Now, a few episodes ago, I was reading a message from Damien who was discussing Kitty perhaps eschewing her Jewish Jewish customs, you know, her heritage. And um, Damien and I both commented that we have like very little familiarity with Jewish customs, but uh, there is one thing I learned about tattoos. Uh, now, being being a guy with a New York accent living in Arizona, um, people usually assume that I am either Italian or Jewish. And, uh, you know, I've got dark hair. Um, I talk like this. Uh, so people, if I'm around Italian people, they generally assume I'm Italian. If I'm around Jewish people, they usually assume that I'm Jewish. And uh, I used to be a windshield repairman. So I would drive around sunny, hot Phoenix, Arizona, repairing windshields. And uh, one day I ran across this uh, gentleman who uh, 
who asked me if my mother was proud. He, he assumed I was Jewish, and he was uh, going to go into uh, like a Jewish Jewish mother, you know, stereotype joke. Uh, he was also, you know, I mean, he was Jewish. I'm not, but uh, but he asked if my mother's proud of me. You know, working on a Sunday repairing windshields, and I laughed. You know, and he told me that uh, his goal was to because uh, he told me his mother wasn't proud of him because his goal in life was to become a comedian and uh, he wasn't terribly funny but uh, he asked if he could try out his uh, parts of his act on me and I mean I'm a captive audience I'm I'm up on his on his van you know fixing a hole in his window <laughs> you know I, I ain't going anywhere so he starts telling me uh, this joke about how he wanted to get a tattoo and his mother said that, you know, that goes against Jewish customs to get a tattoo. And uh, he made a comment about how it's also against Jewish customs, you know, in traditionally not to get cremated. And, I mean, this is a very forced joke this fellow was telling me. He really wanted this joke to pay off exactly the way it was going to. So he told his mother that they'd make a compromise and he would get the words... Do not cremate tattooed on his body. So he'd get his tattoo and he still wouldn't get cremated. So he thought it was a raucous laugh. I laughed because I was hoping to get a tip. Uh, I didn't. But uh, that's that's one thing I know about. Uh, and that's even if this guy's on the level. But that's a, a Jewish custom that I found out about by accident. So Kitty getting a tattoo, that might be something. I don't know. I've never heard it before or since that tattoos were taboo, but uh, perhaps that's what they're alluding to here. I don't know, but uh, that's what I—that's the first thing I thought of when I saw her getting a tattoo because the uh, discussion that Damien and I had was fresh in my mind, and I went right to this uh, this hot Sunday afternoon where I was repairing this guy's windshield. But uh, anyway, as for Kitty and Pyro getting inked, eh, you know what are you gonna do? Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, overall, I'd have to say, personally, I feel like this was a big step down from the opening issue. Uh, still enjoyable enough. Um, maybe I'll get on board with the way Kitty's being depicted. Maybe maybe I won't. I don't know. Um, and I'm not someone who has this, you know, <laughs> another thing we talked about was people calling Kitty, or people having it in their head that Kitty's kind of their girlfriend. I never had that. Uh, she was a... She was nowhere around when I started reading comics. She was on Exc- she was on Excalibur, and Excalibur cost a buck seventy five instead of a dollar. So I never read it uh, back then. So I didn't really have any Kitty in my formative years. Oof! I, I just I should I should say those things out loud more often before I commit them to uh, audio. Anyway, <laughs> before I let you go, let's get into some feedback here. Uh, we do we will start with uh, Damien. He's talking about episode 16, where we discuss New Mutants number one. He says, I'm still working my way through catching up with you, and we, as, and we come to one of my favorites. The choice to centralize Sunspot seemed weird to me at first. I always think of New Mutants as being Danny's book, maybe with Cannonball as a secondary character. I also miss the Bobby Sam stuff in Avengers. I last regularly read Avengers when Kurt Busiek was writing it. Since then, I felt that Avengers was ca- constantly set up as a book you cannot read alone. You need to read ten Avengers books or none. I've chosen none. And, you know, it's weird. I just mentioned that when I came in, Kitty was, uh, you know, she was on Excalibur. She was not in a book that I was following. She wasn't in a book that I considered a flagship book. Now, when I came into the X-Fandom, which was around 1991, 1992... 
uh, you know, Danny wasn't much of a factor when I came in. You know, she was actually a bad guy. She was a member of uh, Strife's Mutant Liberation Front. Of course, it would have, you know, eventually be revealed that she was uh, undercover, but I doubt that was the original intention. Um, it's weird how, you know, when you start reading comics, that kind of informs your depictions of what, of what or who most personifies a book, right? So, you know, when I would think back to New Mutants, which I never read because I came in after the fact, and all the New Mutants books were very, very pricey in the back issue bin around this time, I'd always associate Sam as being the top guy. You know, and actually going back and reading New Mutants several times over, it, I can definitely say that it's, yeah, it's definitely Danny's book. But, you know, those, fir- those first impressions are really hard to break. Um, my first impression is that New Mutants was Sam's book, so it'll always kind of be Sam's book to me. Uh, now, the Busick Avengers is probably as far as I'd ever go again, should I ever, you know, find an extra half dozen hours a day to devote to reading comics. I feel like that's probably the best sustained Avengers run I've ever read. Um, and best of all, you only had to read one book a month. Now, I think, like, if someone came to me now and said, how do I start reading Avengers? I'd probably tell them to, like, maybe take up building model boats instead. <laughs> you know, I, I I wouldn't even know where to tell you to begin. Um, if you're a fan of the movie, you ain't getting anything from the movie in the comics these days. Uh, I'd I could not even tell you where to start. I've been in I've been in the comics fandom for 30 years, and if I went to the comic store tomorrow to pick up Avengers, I wouldn't know what to buy. So, if it's a toughie. Uh, back to Damien. He says, Right from issue one, page one, I loved Rod Reese's art. He brings so much characterization into the team. You're right to compare him to Sienkiewicz, but I'm actually reminded more of the brief run where Sienkiewicz inked Mary Wilshire. There's a naturalism to the body language which really sells it as a character-driven book. That's a very good call. Very good call. As for those characters, you talk about Rain losing her religion. I expect giving birth to to a king of hell will have a theological impact. Personally, I'd prefer to see her still retain faith, but reject the Reverend Craigs of the world. It would be quite interesting to see Rain, Karma, and Nightcrawler creating some kind of Christian fellowship on Krakoa. Hickman seems interested in how faith and religion affect people, so it might happen. And I tell you what, I totally forgot about Rain giving birth. Uh, was that that was that was during uh, like the later X Factor, uh, the the probably what was it twenty twenty thirteen ish. You know, it's funny. I, I love that book, but I swear I can't remember a lick of it. Uh, <laughs> is that who is the one? Layla Miller, the girl who knew stuff, then she was like rapidly aged and like married Jamie. Is she still around? I, I don't know. Guido is not still like Satan or the King of Hell or whatever, is he? I, <laughs> I, who knows? Um, now, I agree. I would like to see Rain maintain her faith, but I think it's interesting to see her actually struggle to do so, you know, like be someone who wants to believe. But, like, know enough or know, or, or know enough to have doubt. Um, I mean, because, like you said, she she did give birth to the King of Hell, and she was just resurrected. So she might actually know what comes in the afterlife. Uh, so that might very well be where we're headed. Uh, back to Damien. He says, My biggest concern with New Mutants was the breaking of the fourth wall. It seems too comedic a device for a team that is so defined by a history of tragedies. In the end, I've come to terms with it when I realized it's just us getting to see life through Bobby's eyes. He lives his life like he's in an episode of Magnum P.I. <laughs> and that's 
That's very funny. Um, I'm generally not a fan of fourth wall breaking. Um, ever since it became like the comic writer's go-to to foment internet laughs and memes, you know, not not a fan of that kind of thing. But I, I really enjoyed it here. I mean, it made it, it made Roberto seem like a like a bit delusional, right? Like as you said, it's like he's starring in his own epi- like an episode of his own show. At the end of the day, he's giving side glances and winks to nobody at all. And if any of his teammates catch him doing it, he's going to look like an idiot. <laughs> and it's, I mean, I, I hope that happens. I hope somebody is, like, calls him out and like, who are you looking at? Who are you winking to? Um, now back to Damien. We'll wrap, it, wrap up his message here. He says, I eventually stopped buying this book, New Mutants, and can't really remember why. I'm tempted to buy the missing books when you get to them. And I hope you do. I hope you do, or at least follow along with Marvel Unlimited as we work our way through. I mean, that's a... Uh, I'm hoping that uh, that people, you know, people will start reading uh, some of the stuff they might have dropped, or or maybe they'll uh, just listen to hear me suffer through the books that they did drop and will not go back to. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Uh, thank you so much for your message, Damien. It's always very, very appreciated here. Uh, from here, we got a couple more. We got uh, we got a message from uh, our friend Dallas Gibson regarding X Men number two. He says, a great episode. Without spoiling, you're not going to get a team book here in X-Men. This is a series of one-shots. They're planting seeds and nation-building. It took some getting used to, but seven or so issues in for me, X-Men has been my favorite so far. Great stuff ahead. So that's good to know. Because that's a question I did ask when we were uh, reading X-Men number two. I didn't know if this was just going to be like vignettes or if we were going to get a team. You know, um... I'm wondering if, outside of, like, Marauders and New Mutants, are we going to get any teams, right? I mean, X-Force seems like just people slipping into seats. Uh, Fallen Angels, I guess it's too, it's too soon to tell, but uh, what other books we got? Excalibur seems like it could be a slip seat kind of a situation as well. But, uh, no, that's, uh, that's good information to have. Um, so I... I can no longer critique it for not being what it's not. <laughs> you know, I, you won't have X-Men number three with me saying, hey, why don't we have a team yet? So now I know. No one's half the battle, and uh, we can move on. So thank you so much, D- Dallas. And uh, uh, your excitement about it is making me excited to read it. So that's a good thing, for sure. And uh, we'll wrap up with a message from our friend Evan Bevins. He says, I'm still playing catch-up on the podcast, but I'm rereading Hoxpox, and uh, that scene where Storm welcomes back the resurrected X-Men seems a little too culty for Storm and some of the others. I mean, I know this is a cultural shift for, uh, shift for them, but dang. So there's another uh, another check in the, wow, that was culty column. Uh, that's That was the impression a lot of us got. And uh, thank you so much for, for sharing that, Evan, and I'm, I'm so happy you're following along. But uh, yeah, that is the... Uh, that seems to be like the big takeaway from that scene for a lot of people, and I'm happy it wasn't just me, because I was, <laughs> I was a little nervous with the, uh, with the tremendous, you know, gargantuan shoe that dropped in that issue that I might might have been focusing on the wrong thing, but uh, I'm happy that other people were maybe a little bit uh, off put by Storm's behavior there. So thank you all so much for uh, for reaching out, sharing, and uh, and for listening, of course. Now, if you'd like to uh, reach out, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. 
You can find show notes and stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. This show has its own page at xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. We got the Facebook group, 90s X-Men. Even though this is not a 90s book, that's the group I got. So that's the group I'm going with. Um, you can find the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You'll be able to find all of the audio exploits. That's, of course, X-Lapsed, Moratory Mondays, Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, Weird Comics History, The Young Animal Gatherums, Chris's on Infinite Earths, all sorts of stuff. Reggie's Comic Stories, all that stuff's uh, archived and ready for your waiting ears. So uh, I think that's where we will uh, draw to a close today. I wish I could have been more positive about this one. Maybe future issues will uh, shock me to my senses. Um... I couldn't help but to be just a little bit annoyed <laughs> at most of the characters in this issue. So we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. We're going to be optimistic here, which is uncharacteristic for me. But uh, we'll try our best. So with all that said, I will thank you all one more time and uh, let you know I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 22 of X Lapsed, uh, where we're going to be talking about my other favorite book from the uh, all the number ones of Dawn of X here. We're going to be talking about New Mutants number two. Let's hop right on into it. This had a January 2020 cover date. The story is called Space Jail. Written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Rod Reese. Uh, letters, VCs, Travis Lanham. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Bisa white Sobolski. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale November 27th, 2019. And uh, right off the bat, this issue has a really fun cover. Um, the part of me feels like it might have been intended for a later issue. Uh, that is, of course, uh, if I'm under the assumption that the cover is reflecting anything that might go on inside the book, which I suppose really isn't a current year comics concern, so who knows. But uh, it does look like it's a story beat. It's just not a story beat we see here today. 
So, let's crack her open, and uh, here we're presented with our roll call. We're going to have Karma, Wolfsbane, Mondo, Cypher, Mirage, Sunspot, Chamber, and Magic. And uh, we open with a couple of pages of Berto recapping everything that's gone on and uh, bringing us up to speed on some things we weren't privy to, which I really like. It's a very efficient use of of paginal real estate. Uh, He talks about... uh, the, you know, how he talked the team into visiting, or as he puts it, rescuing Sam. Uh, he got all of his ex uh, corp business in order first. Uh, they caught a ride with the Starjammers. And during that pirate heist last issue, we actually learned here that the New Mutants, they, uh, they pocketed uh, whatever it was that was stolen. Now, I guessed it was the King Egg, but I'm not so sure that's what it actually was. I suppose we'll, we'll see as we go. Um, turns out that the Starjammers, they thought they had it, but all they really had was the container that the, the thing came in. Uh, we do get a shot here of Rain shoving whatever it is into Mondo's belly, which I, I guess is going to be that poor fella's gimmick. You know, dude who has stuff jammed in his belly, which, you know, with a gift like that, Mondo should uh, maybe try to join the Legion, right? I think that's right up their alley. Um, now from here, the new Muse are arrested, as we saw. Uh, Magic messes with the people on the inside with her soul sword, and Bobby uh, connects with his wicked space lawyer. Three days later, they're in front of the judge. Before we get there, however, uh, how would you like uh, two mostly blank pages that only contain the credits and indicia? Because that's what we got next. And I'm I'm sorry I bring that up every episode here. I'm not sure why that annoys me so much. Um, Because at the end of the day, it's not like they're going to give us extra comics pages instead of it. Uh, we'd probably just get another house ad for one of the, you know, five or six overblown Venom events they seem to have going at once these days. Um, but yeah, double page, spread of creds. Back to comics. Uh, that space lawyer, uh, Blurdock or whatever his name is, he pleads his case to the uh, judge. But the new mutants are found guilty anyway, and they're given a life sentence. Long-term custody of the Shi'ar Empire. But... It's not so bad, because the folks they've been placed under the custody of are Sam and his wife, uh, Crusher or Smasher, or whatever stupid name she's got. Um, in a really cool panel here, all of the new mutants run over and, like, embrace Sam, right? And that is the legacy new mutants. So I'm not counting the Generation X contingent, because they're not all that impressed or moved here. So we get this really awesome panel of this, like, tremendous group hug with uh, Chamber and Mondo just standing out there, not not really, uh, not part of it. I think that's a really cool, uh, really cool thing. Uh, it's worth noting here that Cannonball's wife is really, 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 really annoying. Um, not a fan. Uh, the new muse asks how Cannonball found them, and after joking that he's placed trackers on all of them, he reveals that Bobby's wicked space lawyer actually got a hold of him instead. Uh, Quake or Crumble or Smash or whatever stupid name she is She uh, complains that the call woke the baby Uh, But confirms for at least the time being She and Sam own the convict New Mutants Uh, Here Bobby and Sam have a bit of a contentious reunion Which uh, feels pretty real Uh, It's kind of a tough pill to swallow When your friends kind of like move on uh, Like enter new stages of life and and you kind of don't So uh, I can totally relate to this little back and forth here uh, then, as you know, just as it's getting good, Sam's wife, what's-her-face, rushes in and punches Roberto right in the face. Uh, she's just ticked off about the entire situation and doesn't want to be here in the first place, to which 
I agree. I wish she wasn't here either. Uh, Now, Sam helps Berto to his feet, and they hug, saying that they missed one another. Next, an info page. Uh, It's the court order. Uh, Probably not something we needed to see. Uh, The whole thing leads up to a gag or a joke that just says that uh, Roberto's wicked space lawyer sucked. I don't know if we needed a whole page for that, but that's what we got. Uh, We shift to Shi'ar space, where Sam's super guardian wife, Smasher, so I I guess her name is Smasher, uh, she gets a call from Gladiator of the Imperial Guard, and he reveals that he's got a job for them. Then, another info page. This is just uh, showing Gladiator and his two advisors. And, uh, you know, I'm really enjoying this issue so far, but enough of these for now, please. Can we... Can we... Have a moratorium on these. Can we just not not do these for a little bit? I don't know why this is getting so under my skin, this issue. Um, but not everything needs an info page devoted to it. This whole thing that's here on this page could have been summed up in a narrative caption later in the issue. Didn't need this page. Again, it's not like they would have given us comics instead, but still. Uh, we jump to Sam's pad, and the New Mutants are playing some weird card game with cards that they can't read and don't understand. Well, Cypher gets it, but that's kind of his gimmick. Now, Danny bluffs and says she's got a good hand, and so Jono calls her bluff. At which point she reminds us all that she, quote, fights bears. And, uh, Danny, we really want to go there? I mean, the the, the bear kind of kicked your ass, right? It was your your pals who put the bear down back in the day. Uh, Then again, I guess we got to try to cram a demon bear reference in here somehow. Uh, uh, There's a movie coming out or something, right? Not that Marvel wants you to know about it or or pay money to go see it. Uh, Now, the card game goes on for over two pages, and it ends with Danny proclaiming herself the winner. Until Doug, who can actually read the cards, tries to correct her, and Danny elbows him in the ribs all casual-like, and he comes around to the fact that she, in fact, won. It's a cute little scene. Uh, From here, we catch back up with Sam and Bobby, and uh, the latter fills in the former on all the goings-on at Krakoa. You know how they start in a new language, how there's a quiet council. Uh, Nothing about Xavier dying, which, I mean, the New Mutants wouldn't know anything about that at this point anyway. Uh, Smasher comes in to interrupt and reveals that she's got some good news, and she's got some bad news. Now, the good news is all charges were dropped against the New Mutants. The bad news is they've been drafted into carrying out a mission for the Magister. So, what's the gig? Well, to answer that, let's pop on over to Gladiator and Friends. He's talking to a young Lalandra, Lalandra Deathbird-looking girl, which uh, stands to reason since her, na- her name is Zandra Neramani. Uh, they're trying to groom her for her eventual ascension to the throne. So how do the New Mutants figure, figure in? Well... They've been sent off to fetch Zandra's aunt to be her new advisor. And, of course, her aunt is Deathbird. Sunspot gets one look at the bird lady and decides he's in love. So these uh, synopsises get shorter and shorter as we go, right? These aren't quite Hoxpox-level synopsises here. Uh, and they're not first-issue synopsises either, so... These uh, won't take quite as long <laughs> as we move along here. Um, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this issue here. Uh, I really enjoyed my time with it. Uh, though, and I mentioned it during the synopsis here, I don't know why, but the info pages were kind of like nails on a chalkboard this time out. And it's not like there were more of them than usual. It's just the ones we got were just so pointless and just really felt like page eater, you know? Um, it just, 
it felt like they only told so many pages and, and needed to needed to fill it out. Um, now, when we started this little journey of X-Lapsed here, I mentioned that there are a few kinds of comic stories that I automatically tune out on. And we talked about it with the X to the third power. You know, X cubed was a far-flung future. And I told you I can't do those. <laughs> I really lose interest with far-flung eras, future or past. And the other one is space stories. And uh, I think we can say at this point, this arc, at, at least right now, it kind of sidesteps my worries a little bit. You know, it makes the focus of the story more about the interactions between the characters and not like the starry setting. Though the Shi'ar Imperial Guard is still terribly boring to me. Um, I'm not sure I've ever read an issue with like a primary focus on Deathbird that I'd ever care to read again. Maybe this one will buck that trend, or maybe it won't. <laughs> I guess we'll see. Uh, I am a total sucker for scenes like we got with the kids were playing cards. Uh, I really enjoy the new mutants just acting like friends. Um, it was nice to see. It uh, it reminded me a bit of like the post-crossover quiet issues that Scott Lobdell would do back in the 90s, where it was just the team being, you know, being more of a family, you know, just chatting and, and catching up and just having a good time together and i like that a lot uh now cannonball showing up here was cool uh, though and this might just be me i i could totally relate to sunspot's sort of kind of standoffishness with his uh you know his best pal um and this isn't anything that's necessarily unique to me but i you know, a lot of us you know have been in those situations before where you know you have a really close friend and you lose touch right and maybe months go by, maybe years go by. Just, you know, it happens. It's just, you know, the paths we take in life. Um, you know, they they fork, you know, and we go different directions. And then when you, when you meet up with them again down the line, and, uh, and, like, you see that they're in this whole new phase of life, you know. Maybe they're married. Maybe they have children. Maybe they're, you know, they have a degree. They have a great job. Um... And then you look at yourself, right? And uh, and, and this happens. This happened a lot to me. Uh, but uh, like you'll see your friends who are in these new phases of life, and I'm just stagnating. You know, I, I'm almost like reluctant to accept that anybody's life can go on with me not in it, <laughs> in a way, which is is weird um, because. On the other hand, you know, relating the other way, it was like my life didn't go on without these people in it, because I'm still in the same place, you know? That uh, that really explains a lot of my, like, late teens, early 20s uh, friendships and relationships, and I actually did a whole episode of Chris's on Infinite Earths about it. Um, that's episode 23, Adventures of Superman number 4, I'm sorry, 549, and that is in the archives, if anybody's interested in hearing what a uh, sad sack I am. So yeah, it's like, a, you know, this sort of a scene is kind of a kick in the gut, you know? It makes you question, you know, how far along are you in your life, right? How, what, what opportunities have you passed on or missed out on or just didn't try hard enough to see through? Uh, definitely relatable, and um, I found myself feeling kind of bad for Bobby. Uh, either that or I read too much into it or I just projected onto him. Either way, <laughs> it could be that. Uh, now, Cannonball, I liked seeing Cannonball's wife, not so much. Yish. Um, 
I wouldn't have so much of a problem with her if she didn't strike me as like that like lazy Bendis archetype character. Like like a woman whose entire character can be summed up by her anger or snark. I mean, at least that's the impression I'm getting here. I, I, like, I can't separate Smasher from, like, the Quakes and the Maria Hills of the universe. It just, ugh. Then again, I might just be projecting. That's always a possibility. Overall, I really dug this issue. I thought, uh, you know, there was some real fun character moments here. I really... I don't know why that panel where Jono and uh, Mondo are, like, excluded from the group hug affected me so much. Uh, I, you know, I've made it clear here. I started my X journey in the early 90s, so the New Mutants were, were never my team. They were never my peers, you know? The Gen X kids were, you know? The Jubilee Skins, uh, was a Sink, uh, Husk. Those were my peers growing up, you know? They were... In my uh, cohort, I guess uh, We were of the same age So I, I find myself relating with them so much more Because I experienced all those things firsthand with them Whereas the New Mutants, I had to revisit that later on down the line So seeing them left out of this group hug I It bugged me, but I loved it at the same time Because like they wouldn't be You know, just because they all wear X's on their belts Doesn't mean they're all pals And, uh not that Mondo hung around all that long in the first place, but I just thought this was a very powerful panel. And uh, and what we know about Hickman's writing is uh, you know, there are no accidents, right? There, this this was supposed to this was supposed to be sort of a demarcation, and I loved it. I loved it. Uh, you know, Sam and Bobby's scenes, uh, wonderful stuff. As I've you know talked way too much about already, I thought this was a a real a real nice character piece between the two of them. Uh, you know, friends who hadn't seen each other in a while catching up, and they're they're one's a different guy, and one is uh, the same old guy. It's I like that a lot. Um, now, as much as I enjoyed this issue, I'd be lying if I said I'm looking forward to whatever's heading our way next issue with Deathbird. Uh, I'm not a fan. <laughs> I'm not a fan of the Imperial God. Um, yeah, uh, but again, you know, maybe this will be the story that bucks the trend for me. Also, again, maybe it won't. <laughs> Who knows? But, uh, real fun issue. Real fun issue for the most part. Um, and next we will be talking about X-Force. Which brings us right into our feedback section here, because we have a letter from Damien talking about X-Force number one. Now, he opens up with, I have to start with thanking you for all the nice things you've said about my feedback. This podcast has been a real source of joy in what is a difficult time. It's fantastic to know that I have a podcast to look forward to daily. Thank you. I mean, thank you, actually, for sticking around and continuing to reach out. Um, You know, anybody who reaches out here is part of the show. You know, this isn't just me, you know, sitting in in a room by myself spitting into a microphone. This is, you know, all of us. This is... And, and I mean, I wish I could put into words what it means to me that people are, are willing to reach out and, and just listen. Um, you know, one of the hardest parts about creating content for the Internet, whether it's, you know, a blog you write or audio, video, any sort of production, the hardest part is finding people who are willing to engage. Um I can say with complete honesty that if folks weren't reaching out and chatting me up about the show and, and these books, 
it would be far more difficult to find the motivation to continue doing it. Um, it's hard, you know, I, as much uh, as a buzzword, a corporate buzzword is synergy is, right? I, I think we all kind of like roll our eyes at the concept of synergy because it's just become a, like a corporate go-to. There, there is a real, there, there's something real to it. You know, it's uh, we all propel each other here, and uh, and it means the world to me that there are folks who are listening and uh, and are reaching out and uh, being part of this with me, joining me for this journey. It really, really means a lot. I mean, I've been doing this blogging, potting thing for a half decade now, and so much of it has been met by silence. You know, it's but you keep on keeping on. You you have that hope that. Uh, you know what is what is what was that? Dan, not wasn't Dances with Wolves. It was the other Kevin Costner thing. Field of Dreams. You know, you, if you build it, they'll come. You know, and you have to just hope that uh, that they will. And they don't always, but when they do, it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful. So thank you and, and thanks everybody. Uh, back to Damien's message here. He says, hearing your responses to the feedback, I re- I realized you're not the cynic. You still have enough hope that you kept reading Titans after it became micromanaged by Didio. You're possibly the most hopeful man in comics fandom. <laughs> Those were some very difficult years as a as a Titans fan. Um, now the Titans are basically like my DC X Men, though I'm sure that's not something that's unique to me. Uh, the Titans books, the Titans family of books, when there are families of books, um, they're definitely of the can't quit you variety. And, you know, just like the X-Men, I have a nearly full run of Titans since, you know, they first appeared in the Silver Age. That said, it's been mostly garbage for like 15 years now, which... Well, there's another similarity with the X-Men, or at least how I describe the X-Men. Um, and, you know, on the subject here, a grip of those awful Titans issues were uh, written by the uh, the guy who's writing X-Force right now, Ben Percy. So, there we go. It all comes back full circle. Uh, back to Damien, he says, I gave up on looking for a logical consistency in my comics continuity around about 1995, and since then have mainly focused my attention on the peripheral books. I would not buy a DC Rebirth number one because I know it won't mean anything unless I read everything that DC releases. Even then, I know anything can be overwritten by management if they decide they haven't got enough readers. And that's 100% true. Now, Rebirth number one... I've discussed Rebirth number one a couple of times on this channel. Uh, we did a Cosmic Treadmill, and uh, I also did a Crystals on Infinite Earth standalone episode uh, going through Rebirth. And uh, one of the things I tried avoid avoiding calling it was kind of the buzzword that was going around at the time, was that uh, Rebirth number one was called DC's Apology Letter to the fans, right? You know, after flushing many of us away with the New 52 for what, Turned out to be very short-term gains, though you know, a couple of titles, not, uh, you know, notwithstanding, you know, Batman and Justice League would remain strong throughout, you know, all five or six of the new fifty-two years. Um, unfortunately, though, from how things shook out, Rebirth number one, if you were to read it today, feels like it mostly exists outside of continuity itself. You know, a few things managed to stick, but not as many as you'd hope. Uh, hell, I mean. You'd hope everything that would that, that would come up in an issue, proclaiming to lead to a new, just a new era, would would lead to something, but it didn't. Uh, I think a lot of that had to do with uh, Jeff Johns slipping seats in the DC hierarchy. But I mean, if that's the case, just <laughs> give the books to another writer. Right? Just get someone else who can do it. 
unfortunately, though, Mar- uh, DC fell into that like Marvel trap uh, of like letting superstar creators stomp on all the toys and leaving nothing behind but like a mess of broken pots, right? Uh, DC of 2020 actually feels very much to me like Civil War era Marvel. So was I 2004, 2005, 2006-ish? Uh, folks who know me and have listened to the shows on this channel will know that Civil War was kind of my Rubicon. It was what finally cured me of my Marvel zombiedom. So uh, DC is in that sort of uh, is in that conversation now, um, where I post rebirth I went all in. Uh, I I didn't read very many of the books that I bought, but that's just me being an idiot. But I did go all in. Uh, I took. I didn't take Rebirth as the apology that many people said it was. I just took it as, um, you know, getting to getting to see old friends again. You know, reconnecting with something that gave me joy. I, I felt like it was safe to come home again. You know, not that DC was my home, per se, but, uh, oh, but the New 52 most certainly wasn't. So this was different than that. Um it just feels to me like, I don't know. <laughs> Back to Damien. He says, Obviously my sickness is believing that Hoxpox Docs is the one Marvel relaunch where they will make it possible for me to follow along without buying everything. The X-Men are so important to me that I want them to be for me even when it isn't. Dude, 100%. <laughs> that is the toughest thing. Um... You know, knowing your time's passed with a property or knowing that you're no longer wanted as being part of the audience for a property is such a hard pill to swallow. And, you know, not to keep referring back to the New 52, but I still remember the day that it was announced that DC was going to flush you know, 70-plus years of legacy in order to search for the mostly non-existent new reader. You know, it was a Memorial Day 2011. And... uh Oh boy, that day sucked. People like me were heartbroken. I mean, we spent so much time, effort, money on these characters and these stories. You know, uh, and, and I've talked about this before where people are like, well, they're not, they're not coming to your house and taking the comics away. They're still there. It's like you're missing the point, dude. On the other side of the coin here, you had people like me who were heartbroken, but on the other side... People were almost like celebrating our loss. They were like dancing on the grave of our DC, letting us know that our time had passed and it's time for us to go because all the problems in the comics industry are our fault. And we need we need to be out of here so th- things can you know flourish again. And I mean that's that's kind of how I felt about Marvel too. Probably ever since uh, Axel Alonso was slotted into the uh, EIC seat. Uh, people in my cohort, people of my vintage, were more or less told, hey, these books aren't being written for you anymore. Unfortunately for Marvel, the joke was on them, because despite the fact that they're not for people like me, check it out. Turns out the only, peop- the only it's only people like me who still plop their cash on the counter for this garbage. <laughs> you know, you didn't get your new readers. At least not in numbers where it would matter. Uh, I'm happy to be back in the X camp with Hox Pox Docs, but, uh, you know, I gotta be realistic here. I'll concede that the jury is still very much out on whether or not this will be an extended stay or just a visit. You know, it's, it, a lot, a lot remains to be seen. Um, 
so far so good but uh you never know and like you said here uh something from on high could change everything well, I, I always say about the comics industry we're just we're we're on we're like one day away from the wrong person seeing the wrong line item on their budget sheet and deciding why do we still put money into this <laughs> and comics would be wiped out but uh on an on a less severe note, we could have a new editor seated in there and be like, "What is this crap with Krakoa? Nope, not doing this anymore." So I mean, you just never know. You just never know. That's part of the problem, I think. Uh, it's we're we're a we're a fandom that gets raked over the coals for for not accepting change when all we have is change, right? Yeah. Back to Damien. He says, I crave the feeling I got when I used to pick up Uncanny, New Mutants, and X-Factor and read them and reread them. If I read them now, I still love them. And I totally have similar memories. Um, my core coming in, you know, 91, 92, they were like the big four X-Books. You had Uncanny X-Men, you had X-Men Volume 2, X-Factor, and X-Force. Back then, I could actually buy my entire wor- month's worth of books for a single $5 bill. My uh, local shop did not charge tax to kids, and they were all a dollar twenty-five each. So, five bucks, I get all my books. And uh, like you, I read them over and over again. I read the letters pages over and over again. Everything I could read, I would, it would just be ingrained in me. It's when I flip through some of those early issues, they, the the panels are almost like iconic now, even in just issues that aren't, you know, it's just because I've seen them so many times and they've, they've meant so much to me. Um, also, um, I read them over and over again because I was a wizard kid, you know, wizard, the guide to comics. And I looked for anything that happened in any issue that might make it a key, (laughs) you know, not that I had designs on selling them, I just wanted to own something that was valuable. I wanted something that I could look in the wizard price guide and it would say first something, you know, or it would just have anything denoted on the line for that issue. And it's, it's really crazy. The things that you'll, you know, see in a comic when you want to see it. I, uh, an example I, I usually recall is, uh, having my phone ring, uh, while we, my, I was eating dinner with my family and I was probably 12, 10, 11, 11 or 12. And the phone rang, and it was my friend. And uh, my mother was very annoyed that he called during dinner, but uh, she let me talk to him anyway. And he told me, hey, you got to check out, you know, page whatever in this book that we just bought today. And I flipped to it, and I'm like, okay. And it was a, it was a, an executioner's song issue. Um, so late 92, I guess. And he's like, he's like, dude, I think this was the first time we ever saw a Cyclops without his visor on. Because it was a picture of Cyclops without his visor on, because Strife had knocked it off. And uh, the things you, like, talk yourself into seeing is, like, we were certain that, like, in the next issue of Wizard, uh, we would see we would see a note there that this was the first time we saw Cyclops without his visor on, which is laughably stupid, but uh, we were stupid kids. What are you going to do? Uh, back to Damien. He says, on to X-Force. I only bought this first issue, and I immediately dropped it. I really don't care for the security angle. It's nice to see them doing something interesting with Black Tom, but everything else felt like it was going through the motions, and the cliffhanger was a failure for me. Of course they can resurrect the professor. And Yeah, I think I gotta agree. Um, I mentioned uh, that I was worried that the cliffhanger was more of a meta thing. You know, like, we're being, like, 
what we're being groomed to expect from an opening issue, because I have very little doubt that Charles will be stomping the yard again very soon, and we already know that he's got backup Cerebro units. Also, is a little also a little bit telling is the fact that outside of Magneto brooding a little bit in Fallen Angels, nobody seems all that bothered by his passing. I mean, we saw people dancing the other day. <laughs> it's no, nobody really is too worried about it. Um, so yeah, there's. I don't know. It just feels like a, a little baity, right? A little baity, a little switchy. Um, uh, Damien continues, I'm not a big fan of the ultra-violent X-Men stories, but I have to acknowledge that the action sequences were well-drawn, but this is just not for me. And yeah, this is definitely different in tone from the rest of the line. Um, I hate to sound terribly precious, but uh, it it almost insisted upon its violence, right? The art, it, it was very good. It was very solid art, but uh, yes, darker and uh, very violent. Um, Damien continues, Interestingly, I have seen some people raving about how great this book becomes, so maybe you'll convince me to give it another try. And I I purposely stay out of the circles where these books are being discussed, so I haven't heard a whole lot of hype. Uh, hopefully it becomes something great. Though, uh, with all the Domino stuff on the next bunch of covers, eh, I kind of have my doubts. Uh, she's just not a character I'm all that fond of following, because I feel like all, so many of her stories are basically the same. You know, like she goes somewhere, she gets caught, she gets out. Uh, it feels like that's every Domino story. Maybe, you know, just like with uh, with this new mutants issue, maybe I'll be proven wrong. You know, who knows? But uh, but that's Damien's message. As always, huge thank you for uh, for reaching out. It's very very much appreciated. Our last bit of feedback comes from our friend Jason here, and he says, uh, this is regarding Excalibur number two, and he says, Excalibur number two is the first Dawn of X issue I've read specifically to follow along with X-Lapsed. So, thanks? <laughs> I was, uh, I, I had to laugh out loud when I saw that message, um, because uh, Excalibur number two, if you listen to that episode, not in my wheelhouse, um... <laughs> So the thought that someone else actually read it um, to follow is, is 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 it tickles me. Um, it means a whole lot to me though, Jason. Thank you. It's uh, definitely different, right? <laughs> it's something different. <laughs> Jason continues. Although in fairness, right after that, I also went and read the first official X of Tens event. So S Tens of Swords or X's of Swords or whatever we're calling it. And woo boy, I'll redact spoilers, but I did decide that if I wanted a chance in Otherworld of understanding that event, I would have to go back and read all of the Excalibur book. And probably some previous volumes of Captain Britain. And possibly order some Absinthe off the dark web. But, uh, thank you so much, Jason. Um, I have not been following any of the hype for X of Tens of Swords of Tens of Xs. <laughs> I haven't been following any of it. Um, I don't know what to expect from it. I do know that uh, that people are calling it tens, ten, uh, ten of swords, uh, having to do with like a tarot card or something. I will probably still be calling it X of Swords, but uh, that's just me being an idiot. Um, yeah, so I guess uh, we won't be able to drop Excalibur then, huh? Not that I, not that I was planning to, but uh, we'll have to play. We'll have to keep paying special attention to everything that's going on in Excalibur, right? I think I saw on the credits for uh, for Exoswords, uh, Teeny Howard is a big part of that, and uh, since since she's also writing a caliber, it does stand to reason. So 
yeah, so I, we'll see how it goes. I'm I'm not sure what to expect from it. Uh, like I said, I'm trying to avoid as much of the hype as possible, so it's uh, so it'll come to me as a uh, as fresh as possible. Though I think by the time X of Swords is over with, we should be caught up. If uh, if I keep at this for the next hundred or so days, <laughs> we'll we'll get there. We'll get there, and it'll be all good. <laughs> but uh. You know, the Captain Britain stuff, the older Captain Britain stuff, it's funny you mention that because I was actually just flipping through a couple of those collections um, that I have. I think I mentioned the a few episodes back that I that I have precious little uh, familiarity with the, uh, you know, with the UK, the Marvel UK Captain Britain stuff. Um, but I do have that Alan Moore, uh, Alan Davis trade that... Jemis and Casada screwed up the Indicia on, and also a Davis and Delano collection. And uh, I was thinking about breaking them out to do do a little something with. I, I do have some other projects that I'm kicking around, and uh, I think that might be a fun one to do. I think that might be a, an interesting one to do because I think so many folks have uh, have missed out on it. Um, I know that that uh, that Moore and Davis uh, volume. I don't know that it's still in print, or if it was even in print very long because of the Indicia mix-up. But uh, I'd like to share some of those because those were. Those are some great stories. Um, I don't know if I talked about it here or on a different show, but uh, yeah, I mean, they were able to make that 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 character, the Fury, like the scariest thing in the world, and uh, that's always cool. That's always cool when you when you can take this uh, when you take a character and actually make you make you scared of it. I think that's a that's a damn good thing for uh, for comics, but. Uh, that is Jason's message. Thank you so much for reaching out, Jason. And also thank you for making me jealous by posting the picture of uh, your walk, <laughs> of your, your your autumn walk, where the leaves are changing color out in uh, New England, where here I am in Arizona, and it's still triple digits Fahrenheit, and uh, the bushes in the backyard are dying, but that's about as folly as we're going to get. But uh, thank you so much. Uh, if you'd like to reach out, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find the show notes at ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarths.com or xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can find the complete audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I think that's all I got for you today. Just uh, thank you all so, so much one more time. And uh, till next time, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
How's it going, everybody? This is Chris, and welcome to episode 23 of X-Lapsed, and uh, this is a late-night recording of X-Lapsed. Today I spent some time with family at a uh, birthday party for my nephew, and uh, as a result, wound up spending a lot of time bouncing around a trampoline with my niece and nephew, which is very out of character for me, and and so uh, your boy's a little punchy tonight. (laughs) He's uh, aching a little bit, but uh, that will not stop us from discussing... The book we've uh, you know we've come here to discuss, and that is of course X Force number two. Let's hop right into it. This issue had a January 2020 cover date. The title is The Sword of Damocles, written by Benjamin Percy with art by Joshua Cassara. Colors by Dean White, letters VCs Joe Caramagna, design Tom Muller, head of X is Hickman. Edits Robinson White Sabolski, cover price three dollars ninety nine cents American on sale November twenty seventh, twenty nineteen. Now we pick up, if you remember, last issue of X-Force ended with uh, Professor X, well, shot in the head and dead. Uh, so we pick up seemingly right after where we left off there. We have Magneto lifting uh, Xavier's Cerebro helmet, lamenting the fact that he wasn't able to save his old friend. Then we get this like full, you know, full scene shot of Xavier's body laid out in a field where he was hunted down. Uh, he's surrounded by many, many mutants, a real who's who, including some folks that I don't think we've seen yet in the post-Hox-Pox landscape here. See, strong guy, so uh, I guess he isn't still Satan, or the king of hell, or whatever the hell he was. Uh, Dakin, uh, the son of Wolverine. Uh, Dr. Nemesis, uh, which reminds me, um, is danger still a thing? Uh, you know, that, that sentient danger room character out of that... Lazy and delayed uh, Whedon run? Is that, is that still a thing that exists? Um, Shatterstar, Feral, Firestar, friggin' Mammomax, the elephant-faced mutant, he's here too. I mean, it's insane how many characters they're cramming onto this page. Uh, it's worth noting, Betsy, Gambit, and Jubilee are here out of Excalibur, but we don't see Rogue. Also, Bishop's here. Though, in the most recent issue of Marauders that we discussed a couple episodes back, he does fill the team in on Xavier's passing, so it might stand to reason that he is here for uh, for this scene. Really cool page. Um, so many uh, so many characters I haven't seen in a long time right here. I really, really enjoyed it. So, let's meet our cast. We've got Magneto, Jean Grey, Beast, Cecilia Reyes, Reyes, um, Black Tom Cassidy, Sage, Wolverine, and Quentin Quire, Kid Omega. From here, we get two pages of credits we'll never get back, and then comics. Magneto and Jean chat about how important it is to get everything back to normal. You know, bringing Xavier back, getting Cerebro back online, all that stuff. Jean thinks she can handle it, but Magneto says, hey, you know, don't think, do. You know, the success is the only real option here. He then uses his powers to manipulate the shattered Cerebro helmet into the shape of a sword. So we keep getting a sword imagery here. Uh, he tells Jean that there's a clock ticking. They gotta move fast. And so next thing we know, Jean is chatting up Beast. Hank talks about how crazy things have been and how strange it is 
for Xavier to like not require things like a dedicated security detail. You know, he's like out and about in the world. He's wheeling and dealing in Krakoa's best interests, and he does it alone. We saw it last issue. He went to, uh, I don't know, somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in, the, in Russia, I think. But he was by himself. So it is odd that Xavier isn't going with a like a mutant secret service of sorts. He is a head of state now, right? Hank mentions the Sword of Damocles, which uh, not only evokes the name of this issue, but it's a little bit another uh, sword reference. And uh, we keep getting those, and I guess we will continue to. Now, the pair head into the Cerebro Cradle number one, and uh, that's where one of the backup helmets are. Gene states that only one Cerebro can be live at a time, and it's going to be up to Henry to get this one back up and running. He's not so sure he can do it, but Gene tells him he's got to have faith. And, um... I think I talked about this last issue here. Uh, we're we're not going to be completely subtle. We're taking the less subtle approach here. Um, the logical scientist in Hank having to re- rely on his faith. And uh, I feel like we're going to be doing this sort of like belief gymnastics a lot here. Um, and I think I said this about Gambit uh, back in Excalibur number two, how he didn't believe in magic. And he thought Betsy was like crazy for seeing invisible people. I mean, would anybody in in the Marvel Universe only rely on logic? I mean, they've got gods, devils, they've met them. They've met gods and devils. They've gone to heaven. They've gone to hell. There's just too much extraordinary stuff in this universe to raise these kind of quandaries and, and make it seem authentic, right? I mean, they've seen so much that uh, that defies logic. And here we are with the with the scientist having to be having to, you know, push down to get some faith. I, very unsubtle, and it feels feels kind of forced. Now, from here, we get an info page breaking down the assassination of Charles Xavier from a security point of view. It's very corporate in structure here. It's sort of like a lessons learned or best practices document. Uh, if anybody out there is familiar with, you know, like a post-event corporate memo, like something happens at the office or in a warehouse or something, and it's like, okay, well, this is what we learned from it, and this is what we need to do in the future to prevent it. I mean, it's fine for what it is. Uh... We do learn here that there were 33 mutant deaths in the raid. Not that such a thing really matters anymore, but it's there if we want it. We head over to the Healing Gardens, where Cecilia Reyes is examining the bodies of the Wetworks crew from the last issue. She's joined by Sage and Black Tom, the latter of whom can't stop blaming himself for everything that's gone down. Is it really his fault, though? I mean, he did try to warn everybody, including Xavier. They just weren't listening, and Xavier threatened to fire him. Now, Reyes reveals that these characters had extra bones and accessories grafted into their bodies, to which Sage makes a reference that they're being outfitted sort of like the old uh, X-Men villains, the Reavers, which uh, is kind of a neat twist. Wolverine enters the room and asks the Morlock healer how many of these bad guys are still alive, and it's just one. Logan stops himself from killing that last one and overhears something quite interesting. Now, you remember how last issue, Sage got readings that Domino had returned as the, uh, as the comet of Wetworks characters were, were coming down from that plane. Well, there was a reason for that. And it's, uh, it's that these Wetworks geeks had some of Domino's skin grafted onto their own. Wolverine's, uh, you know, he's heard enough. He decides it's time for him to go hunting. And he asks that Sage have Gene come in and try to read that last living Wetworks character's mind. Now, before we get to that, let's follow Wolverine. Let's see what he does here. He does a little Google search, and it brings him to a facility in South Korea. Here, he runs into Quentin Quire, who's uh, 
also hot on the trail of whatever it is that Wolverine's looking for. Now, apparently, we do learn something about Kid Omega. It's that he smells like a mixture of body spray, soda, and crotch, which is some uh, wonderful smell visual in it. I gotta say, though, he does look the part. I feel bad for his bed. Um, Now, Quentin reveals that he's here to take out the guys who took Xavier out, and he begins clickety-clacking in on a nearby console to get down to business. Back on Krakoa and back in the cradle, Hank wrestles some more with his faith and prayers and stuff, which, as mentioned, feels really forced. Uh, I mean, I get what they're going for here, but... You know, rather than making seem Hank seem, like, skeptically conflicted, all they're doing is making him into, like, a guy I'd never want to be stuck in an elevator with. It's just really forced and annoying. We hop back to South Korea, where Wolverine and Kid Omega make their way to another compound. Well, it looks like a printing press, and we'll soon find out that it sort of kind of is. Now, after KOing the guard detail, they saunter on in. What they find is, uh, yeah, this place is a printing press. But uh, rather than printing books, brochures, and junk mail, they're printing assassins from nervous system to skin. Back to the healing gardens, Sage has called for Jean, and they keep examining. They're finding that many of these corpses' body parts have been made into, like, multitaskers. You know, it's as though they were assassins created in a lab. Or, you know, a weird South Korean printing press. Uh, Jean finally gets down to business of mind-reading, and, well, she gets herself a head full. A head full of what, you might be asking? Well, she doesn't know, and neither do I. It does waste an entire page, though, so there's that. From here, we hop into an info page, and perhaps this is some of what Jean saw? Uh, This is titled, The Strange Case of Phineas Hook. Now, Phineas is a fellow that Domino had been tracking for Xavier, so maybe it's this dude? Uh, It's worth noting here that this fella, Phineas, he spent his evenings hanging out on anti-mutant chat rooms on the dark web. (laughs) Seriously? I mean, are there chat rooms of any kind out there anymore? I mean, an anti-mutant chat room? Why why does it have to be on the dark web? I mean, (laughs) are we just just saying words that sound cool? Um, I don't know. (laughs) So that's what we learned about Phineas for now. Back to the press. Logan and Quire keep looking for murdery merchant at the murdery merchandise when they find themselves under attack by basically globs of human-shaped muscle. Quire attempts to go on the offensive, however, he realizes that his powers aren't working. Wolverine's like, hey, too bad, but you can still kick, punch, and bite, so <laughs> do what you can do, and, uh, and Wolverine continues to hack away at the meat. Now, Quentin breaks away from the fight, and we wrap up with him stood before a giant canister, and inside it is Domino. And from the looks of it, great big swaths of her skin have been forcibly removed. And that's where we leave it. Next episode, we will wrap up the Dawn of X number twos with Fallen Angels. But how about we talk about what we just read here? Let's let's take a look. I'm not hating the story. I'm really, uh, I'm actually liking the story, but I gotta say, um, and this is a complaint I had about Ben Percy when he was on Teen Titans here. He has this, like, very forced, or maybe it is just an unsubtle way of writing. Um, I think I mentioned it last time we discussed X-Force. It feels like he writes backwards from, like, a punchline or, like, a point that he feels is, like, poignant. I mean, it's not the worst thing in the world, but it kind of telegraphs a lot of the dialogue, making it feel... Rather inauthentic 
you know, I don't believe it when they say it, right? It just feels, it feels like it's manufactured to make a point. It's kind of like, you know, when you come up to come up with like a comeback for a joke that, or you, a comeback to an insult that no one's ever levied at you. So you think it's the most, it's, it's, you know, the George Costanza jerk store thing from Seinfeld. You know, you have this awesome punchline or this awesome comeback and you have it in your back pocket, just waiting to use it. And you, you just, maybe you just can't sometimes, maybe it's just not an authentic conversation that's going to go in that direction. And that's, that's kind of how I feel about Percy's uh, dialogue sometimes. Um, I mean, we have what well, we have here with the Beast, right? He's trying to balance logic and faith, which, I mean, that's a struggle as old as time, right? Or at least as old as, you know, college freshmen coming home at Thanksgiving with a whole new set of ideals, you know? I feel like in the real world, sure, have that quandary, have that internal debate, have that conflict, but we're in a world that's predicated on the concept of resurrection, right? This entire Hoxpox Docs landscape is based on resurrection. And uh, even the most skeptical among us might be a bit more open to displaying faith in that sort of a, in that sort of a environment, I'd feel. I don't know, maybe Beast is struggling with that as well. But I mean, he's seen it firsthand. I don't know. Just It just doesn't feel authentic to me. It feels like... We're writing backwards. Um, let's talk about the bad guys here. The Wetworks team being a sort, being sort of revealed as a more assassiny version of the Reavers. I like it. I think that's cool. Uh, it you know takes something from the X Men's past and it makes it a whole lot creepier and nastier. You know, I think that's a really cool thing to do. It it brings them into the now, and uh, you know I think that that fits the tone of a book like this. You know, these organic Reavers might be the best foils to open with. And, uh, you know, I'm guessing by the fact that they had Domino that these Reavers are tied in somehow with that Court of Owls group we saw last issue, which which is fine. No problems with that. I think that's a, that's a, fine, uh, a, fine, a fine set of bad guys for our opening uh, salvo here for, for X-Force. Uh, Quentin Quire. Oof. Now, this is a character I should absolutely hate. But I can't. <laughs> I like him a lot. Uh, I don't know how, because I mean, looking at him, it's like, oh man, I'm gonna hate this guy. But I, I just enjoy so many of the scenes with him in it. And you know, I will say they definitely softened him up quite a bit from the Morrison days, right? Uh, I mean, the whole thing with him getting like, I think he got like a Hitler haircut in like his first appearance. You know, like his his whole his whole look was based on something pretty bad. <laughs> And he was just a real, a real a-hole. He still is. Um, and, uh, I mean, but he's more fun now. He's, like, fun in, like, a like a pain-in-the-ass sort of way. And I, I've always felt that he and Wolverine play with each other really well. I think they're a good pair. And I think they're, I think they're a lot of fun together. Other than that, though, there's really not a whole lot more to, like, analyze here. I think that's something we're going to discover as we go deeper into these books. I mean, these aren't really building the way House of X and Powers of X did. You know, these are these are a different animal. So there's going to be a less to you know parse out and less to discuss. But uh, we're we're still going to do it. We're still going to put in the work. Um, that said, I did I, I did enjoy this. I liked it. I'm very, very happy we didn't see Xavier just walking around already. <laughs> I like that they're, you know, playing a bit with the tension. Um, 
like we've said before, you know, they're, they're changing the stakes. It's no longer purely about life and death. It's about everything else. And uh, I'd say it's a fine enough issue, and uh, I'm definitely looking forward to what's to come. So a net positive with X-Force number two. And, uh, of course, next episode is Fallen Angels number two, which uh, wasn't everybody's favorite <laughs> last time out. And uh, as evidence of that, let's hop into the mailbag here, because I uh, got a letter from Damien discussing Fallen Angels number one. He says, I loved Marauders and New Mutants. X-Men was okay. Excalibur was disappointing. I didn't like X-Force, but I hated Fallen Angels. And I think we're in a similar boat here, as far as our preferences for those first issues. I, I can't say that I outright hated Fallen Angels, but, you know, that might be my... I've got something of a current year comics cushion. <laughs> you know, it's a knee-jerk reaction where I'm afraid that I am rating current year stuff on a an unfair metric, you know? Um... I've mentioned before, I used to be a reviewer of current year comics at a site that they, where they used a, you know, a X out of 10 grading system, you know, where if you go to Comic Book Roundup, you know, if you want to get in with the publishers, everything's a 10 out of 10. Uh, this was an honest, or this is, and it's still, there's, it's weird comics, weird science DC comics. They're still uh, alive and kicking. They're still doing great things, but uh, they, their thing is that, uh, they weren't swayed in that sort of a way. It was honest reviews, honest scores. Um, that said, I would cushion my scores, you know, to cushion any potential biases I might have had against, you know, things like the nuts and bolts of current year comics, right? Things like let's look at a, let's look at Dawn of X here. Info pages, a double page spread for our credits. You know, that stuff that in my in my reviewer mind, I would cut points out for. Even though it doesn't hurt anything, I just don't like that it's taking up pages. Um, because I'm used to comics being told a certain way. So, in order to combat that, or to counter that, I would grade on a curve. You know, I try to reconcile that, you know, in my peanut brain, that something like, this comic is not for me, doesn't exactly, doesn't exactly equal this is a bad comic, right? Something that isn't for me can still be a good comic. Something that is for me can still be a bad comic, right? There's definitely overlap from time to time. So maybe I've been doing this so long that the way that I grade comics has somehow bled into the way I describe them? I don't know. I mean, that said, Fallen Angels definitely wasn't for me. Um, like I say... Most times, I, I'm, I'm, in case it isn't completely obvious here, I kind of fence it. <laughs> you know, I have things I don't like, I have things I like. But I try to, I don't know, I try to reconcile that with, you know, somebody might have picked up Fallen Angels number one and thought it was the best thing in the world. You know, um, it wasn't for me, but at the same time, I can't say that I necessarily hated it. But again, that might just be my fence-sittery uh, cushion kicking in. Uh, back to Damien. He says, I'm quite surprised by how positive you were about this. Maybe maybe go knowing it's a mini helps. I bought it thinking it was the start of an ongoing. I do not get Quanan. Her whole creation retcon happened in an era where I had given up on the X-Men, and I mainly think of her as a punchline. She was created to explain how Betsy changed. 
After her first appearance, everyone wrote in to point out it contradicted the explanation of the original stories. So they retconned her. Laughable. And yeah, Quanon or Revanche or whatever the hell they were calling her back then was definitely a solution in search of a problem back in the long ago. Um, you know, I, I joke that like, it was almost as though Lobdell and friends saw people complaining that the Xbox were, like, so hard to navigate and so hard to get into and decided to just, like, screw it. Well, up the ante here, <laughs> you know? Uh, having whichever Qbert on art made things even more confusing. Uh, since the purple-haired ladies, Psylocke and Quanon, they looked almost exactly alike. Outside of, like, which volumizing shampoo they used. Uh, you know, uh, Psylocke did not have any... Like purely Asian um, features, and Quanan didn't have any purely British features. They they just looked like Hubert women, you know. Um, I mean, I still remember the big reveal, you know, because like there was the cover. It was like X Men, like twenty one, twenty two, volume two, and like it's the X Men all freaked out, and there's like a hooded character before them. Pulling their man, pulling their hood off, but you don't see who's what the face looks like, and you know you look at that and you're like hyped, you know who's this gonna be? So we see her on hood, and I just thought it was like okay, Psylocke has a clone because facially, she was damn near identical. The only immediate difference you saw is that that she like might have gotten a perm, you know, because her hair was bigger. It was uh, definitely a flat reveal to someone like me. Um, back to Damien. He says, this book felt like one of those awful 90s books where everything is dark and sexy and there's lots of cyberpunkish nonsense. Even the layouts lean into that. Close-up eye, close-up lips, boob shot, butt shot. Everyone has secret children or secret siblings and aren't ninjas cool? And yes, your point is very well taken. I feel like, you know, it's almost like... Like, this could have been released today as a lost image comic from the mid-90s. You know, something they found in the drawer with, like, a 1995 date on it. And I don't think anyone would have batted an eye, because you're spot on there. Uh, back to Damien, he says, I really didn't like this. Uh, by the way, the 80s Fallen Angel series has a special place in my heart. It came out at just the right time for me, and I enjoyed the combination of ridiculousness and high melodrama. When I heard there was going to be a Fallen Angel series, I genuinely hoped they were going to resurrect Don the Mutant Lobster. <laughs> and it's funny, um, over the last little while, I've been hearing a lot of fond memories of that 80s Fallen Angels. If, you, if anyone listens to Moratory Mondays, also on this channel, uh, me and Chris Bailey, we make fun of it a lot. As being boring, because uh, like every month for a little while, the bullpen bulletins page uh, would would like rave about it, and we're like, oh, this boring series, and and folks have actually reached out to express their fondness for the run. Um, so maybe, you know, I haven't talked about the the books club in a while. Maybe uh, maybe Fallen Angels might have to get a revisit um, somewhere down the line. I swear, though, I don't think I actually ever made it all the way through. I know I've tried a few times, but I don't think I actually read all, what was it, eight issues, maybe ten issues? I don't think I've actually ever made it to the end. Um, that said, I did just find my 80s run because I filed the uh, first Dawn of X Fallen Angels issue right behind it. So I know where it is. <laughs> so if it ever comes down to uh, talking about it, uh, I'm open to it. 
Now back to Damien. He says, thanks again for the podcast. It was great to hear more feedback. I didn't know about the 10 years since Fantastic Four timescale mentioned by Al Sedano. I wonder if that's intact. I would place Franklin in his teens, which would imply a longer continuity. He is a reality warper, though, so maybe he made himself older with his powers. And yes, that, that was news to me as well. You know, I knew there was some sort of formula Marvel used to slide the scale. I just really wasn't sure how hard and fast it was, right? Maybe the movie universe has something to do with it? Uh, or maybe it's just something we're not supposed to think about? I don't know. Um, you know, not to go on a, on a New 52 rant again, but uh, when that launched, they tried to adhere to a, like a five-year scale, you know, where when we met these characters, only five years had passed since, you know, the start of the, uh, like, Superman's arrival or something. Now, naturally, they kicked this off with Batman showing off his four Robins. Which, I mean, four Robins in five years? Come on, it's kind of a mess, isn't it? Oh, boy. Well, thank you so much for the um, email, Damien. It's always a pleasure. Next, we have a message from Jason. This is a spoiler-free X of Tens or <laughs> X of Swords or Tens of Swords uh, bit here from him. Uh, he says, I'm told that a bunch of the stuff being mentioned in X of Tens he wants to get that trending hashtag ECKS of Tens. And I think uh, we should try to do that for sure. He says, I think uh, a bunch of the stuff being mentioned in X of Tens is out of the Alan Moore Captain UK run in the 80s. The only Alan Moore I've read is Watchmen and Swamp Thing, so I'm pretty lost. And I tell you what, I've said this before, I think I've said this almost every episode <laughs> the past few times here. The more Captain Britain stuff is wild. Um, you, you might never look at the character the same way again. Um, I always kind of discounted Captain Britain as kind of an also-ran, you know, it's like, oh, well, we have Captain America, they've got Captain Britain. But this run, oof, it's a goodie. Um, I can't say enough good stuff about it. Um, I replied to this message by saying if I uh, had to choose two Alan Moore works to take with me on a desert island, which would be a wildly specific sort of endeavor, right, um, I would pick his Captain Britain and his Miracle Man. Those are the two, my two favorite Alan Moore works. Um, Captain Britain is just, it's an amazing run. Um, I never, uh, I never cared for Captain Britain. I always thought he was just, I thought he was a lame character. I didn't think he was that great. But uh, when, I, when I read that, uh, that Moore run, um, oof. It's good stuff. Um, definitely highly recommended. Um, and uh, that might be a might be a series that I that I do some talking about pretty soon. Because that's uh, I'm looking for an excuse to reread it. So <laughs> you never know. Uh, but thank you, Jason. Uh, uh, thank you for keeping um, the X of Tens talk spoiler free for uh, for those of us who aren't there and uh, probably won't get there for a little while. But uh, I definitely appreciate. The information here, um, because if we if we do get some of that Captain Britain stuff covered in the interim here, maybe we'll be uh, you know we'll be we'll we'll get the extra credit on X of Swords or Ten of Swords or Tens of X's or X's of Tens. But uh, thank you so much, Jason. Uh, now finally, we have a, a letter from our friend Al Sedano. He says, first of all, nice to see you're continuing the show post Hoxpox. It gives me a reading order for whenever I get to that point. I hope, <laughs> I hope the reading order that I'm doing is the right one. Um, I've mentioned it before. Uh, they, 
The lists online are conflicting and contradictory, and sometimes they cluster, you know, four uh, Excalibur issues in a row. And I don't know. Right now, I'm going with the uh, the basically the by the by the, the sale date, um, the order that they list in the back of these early Dawn of X books, where they kind of give you an order that you should be reading them. I'm just following that for now. I think that goes away pretty soon, at which time we'll have to reevaluate and see uh, see how we do it. Um, I do think when we get to things like uh, X-Men Fantastic Four, I'll probably just do those all in one clump. Um, Empire X-Men, we'll probably do those in one clump. Um, but uh, we'll... Uh, yeah, we'll play. We'll play it by year. I think you know, there's a free comic book day uh, story that we'll be covering. There's those giant sizes that we'll be getting to. So there's a lot of stuff that uh, doesn't, that may not exactly fall into place that we'll just have to uh, use our judgment on. Um, back to Ali says, okay, so my thoughts after reading House of X number two and listening to episode three. Now, of course, House of X number two was our first red-colored uh, issue where... Uh, Something big went down. We found out the uncanny lives of Mora. Now Al says, I want to know what cured what cured Mora magically when she was 13. Was it all just due to her mutant power, or is there more to it? Well, we haven't heard anything else. Um, I'm going to assume it was her... It was just... Maybe her illness was her mutant power manifesting. Maybe it really wasn't an illness. I don't... I don't know. Uh, we've seen, you know, we've seen mutants react differently to having their uh, powers manifest, so maybe it was that. Um, he, he continues, I'm not as bothered by the text pages as you, but since I'm reading it in a hardcover, maybe you're right about it working better there. And I, I, I stand by that. I feel like if you read House of X, Powers of X as a collected edition, the info pages and the quote pages and the mostly blank pages probably... They probably give you a little bit of a breather and just signify that, you know, you're at a chapter ending or you're just getting information. When you're reading a 22-page or 20-page or an 18-page comic that you're paying $5 for and it feels like every third page is just text, yeah, (laughs) it's a bit of a pain. Al continues, in Mora's third life, when she's killed by the Brotherhood, you missed Avalanche. But he was hiding in the shadows and doesn't speak, so it's understandable. Yeah, I didn't mention him. Yeah, I, I must have missed him. Um, Al continues, Since you mentioned Avengers vs. X-Men, I wanted to say Cyclops was right. Hell yeah, he was. <laughs> I remember uh, when Avengers vs. X-Men number one came out. Um, I went to my local shop, and he had two great big, like... Like bowls that you would like put chips in, you know, for like a if you had like a, a party, you know. He had these two big bowls and there were pins, buttons. And one would say, I'm with the Avengers, and one would say, I'm with the X-Men. And I swear, I was the only one to pick up an I'm with the X-Men button. You know, because he said you can only take one. You had to pick a side. You can't have them both. You gotta pick a side. Everyone went with the Avengers. I was the only one to pick up an X-Men one. Um, so yeah, I'm very, very, uh, I'm very passionate that Cyclops was in fact right. Uh, Al continues, the death of Mora 4, I'm wondering if that was supposed to be the Days of Future Past timeline. It just has that feel to it. And yes, flipping through it right now, um, it does have, you know, uh, a Sentinel taking out Wolverine very much like the cover of, uh, of Uncanny X-Men 142. So yes, that very well could be. 
uh, Days of Future Past right there. Uh, Mora 9, the way she and Apocalypse are holding hands and fighting to the death together. Was there a romance between them? I'm kind of fascinated by the idea of Apocalypse being in a relationship. And, uh, well, you'll find out more about that as you continue uh, through uh, Hawkspox there. Um, back to Ali says, I can understand your issue with the thought that they have that they have a way to retcon this all built into the story. But let me offer this perspective. Marvel likes to do stories that change things. Superior Spider-Man, New X-Men, Peter Parker outing his identity. They also like to retcon these things and go back to the traditional status quo. Out of the examples I mentioned, Superior Spider-Man did it the best, most likely because Dan Slott had it set up from the beginning, if I remember correctly. The other two were messy, and were done either after the creator left or by duress. If Marvel is just going to retcon this anyway, I'd rather have it be planned. And yes, I, I can definitely understand that. And uh, Superior Spider-Man, I think that is probably Dan Slott's finest work. I think that was... That's one of those things like Quentin Quire. I should have hated it. You know, I should have just despised it, but... I'd be lying if I said it wasn't the top of my stack every week it came out. I absolutely ate it up. Too bad everything that came after kind of sucked. But uh, Superior Spider-Man, that whole run was a blast. Uh, Really, really enjoyed it. Um, But uh, I I definitely, I I can agree with that perspective, Al, about, uh, you know, Marvel does what Marvel does. And if they're going to retcon, you might as well plant the seed so it doesn't just come out of nowhere. Um... The only thing that I would say is that, you know, I I always worry about, you know, getting the toothpaste back in the tube, you know, getting the genies back in the bottles here. And when you when we explore stories like that handle things like resurrection, things like these high concepts, I mean, that's the big buzzword around Hickman, high concept. When you change that, when you do retcon, when you do go to a different status quo, when you revert We already saw this, right? I mean, we already saw this timeline. It's not, this isn't a what if, this isn't a Elseworlds. This is a story that's being told that we're supposed to be following as the, the now, the real, the 616. Um, it's hard for me to reconcile that. I'm just, I'm just a guy who hates retcons. So (laughs) I'm going to be, I'm going to be a, Kind of a tough sell on such a thing here. I, like, I mean, let's look at Peter Parker outing his identity. And uh, this is me totally going off on a tangent here, but uh, Peter Parker unmasks, right? This isn't a hoax. This isn't an imaginary story. This isn't a dream. We see how the world reacts, right? We see how Jonah reacts to finding out Peter Parker is Spider-Man. We see how New York reacts to knowing who Spider-Man is. We see how the world reacts. This is real. For the time that it was in continuity, it was real. That said, we stuff that genie back in the bottle, but it doesn't, it doesn't all fit anymore, right? Because now we know what would happen if. I think that's the biggest thing about so many of these stories, is that we... We talk about stakes a lot on this show, right? I mean, what are the stakes to Parker's identity? What are the stakes to Peter Parker dying? What are the stakes to the X-Men dying? We want to see what comes next. We want to see how people react. With something like outing an identity, we already know how the, the world reacts. 
with the X-Men starting up at Krakoa, we know how the world reacts now. So it'll never be a, a question anymore. And I, I realize that this is kind of a wobbly analogy, but uh, it just it feels like the stakes are just really, really screwy. And I, I have a feeling that Dawn of X, this Hickman era of X-Men, will probably end with Mora dying. And Lord only knows where we'll wind up. <laughs> you know, X-Men Volume 6, Number 1, or Uncanny X-Men Volume 14, Number 1, whatever we get. Um, but, you know, your point is very well taken. If, if that's the way Marvel's going to do business, at least it'll make sense this way. You know, they, they do have that back door, and uh, I'm guessing that before long they will use it. Uh, back to Al's message. It says, I do like my digital comics, but in this instance, I'm very happy I picked up the hardcover. The Mora time, Timelines graph is much easier to navigate this way. And yes, I, I would imagine this would be kind of a bear to read on a, uh, on a tablet. Um, the, Mora, the Mora pages especially, where it does work a lot better in the, uh, the hard format. Um, finally, yes, I'm in agreement with you that the Tenth Life of Mora is basically the one we've been reading all these years. So, yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's what everybody's been been alluding to. Um, I was a little bit wobbly on it toward the end there <laughs> because I wasn't sure how everything fit uh, until people just told me, you know, hey, everything fit, just deal with it, and I'm like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> That's that. Um, Al wraps up. I think that's everything. On to the next issue. And thank you so much for reaching out, Al. I do hope you continue to as we work our way through. Um, I'm definitely uh, interested in hearing all your thoughts. And uh, I hope you continue as well into the Dawn of X landscape here. And I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to pick your brain on, uh, on the new status quo. So thank you. And uh, thanks, everybody, as always. Uh, if you'd like to reach out and uh, engage with the program, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find the show notes and all that good stuff at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com or xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com. If you want to chat us up on Facebook, just search for 90s X-Men on Facebook. It's a group, and it's a, it's a group called From Claremont to Claremont, which is a show that is still... I'm still working on <laughs> It's just a big show. Um, and it takes a long, long time to uh, put all those pieces together. But it is it is still a, a thing that exists. It's still a thing that is uh, on the forefront of my mind. Um, what else? Uh, yes, the audio archives. ChrisandReggie.podbean.com You can find all of the programs at, of the Chris and Reggie channel, which is... Uh, X-Lapse, Moratory Mondays, Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, Weird Comics History, Real Comics History, The Gatherums, Young Animal, Sandman, what else? Chris is on Infinite Earths, uh, all those shows. A lot, a lot of shows. Uh, thousands of hours of audio, if, uh, if you have thousands of hours to kill. But I think that's where I'll put a pin in it today. Uh, just one more giant thank you to everyone listening, and uh, till next time, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.
How's it going, everybody? This is Chris, and welcome to uh, what might be the shortest ever episode of X Lapsed. <laughs> this is going to be episode number 24, and the reason it might be short is because it's, uh, well, the subject today is Fallen Angels number two. And, uh, well, there's just not a whole lot to say about this one. Um, <laughs> this is uh, Fallen Angels volume two, number two, at a January 2020 cover date. We'll hop right in. Uh, the story is called Shoto, written by Brian Hill, with art by Simon Kudransky. Colors by Frank D'Armada, letters by VC's Joe Sabino. Designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Robinson White Sobolski. This had a cover price of $3.99 and went on sale November 27th, 2019. Now we hop right in. We open in London and we're in the past. We see Quanan is chatting up a fellow who is looking for safe passage. He apparently betrayed the clan, who I'm assuming uh, she's talking about the hand here. Uh, she tells the man she can free him before, you know, killing him. She smashes a glass into his face and eyes before running him through with her katana. Huh. A katana is a sword, isn't it? Hmm. Then, a pair of gun-wielding goofballs enter the scene, but Quanan is able to neutralize them handily by, uh, you know, chopping them into bits and then uh, stomping one down in a double-page spread. Speaking of double-page spreads, the credits are next, followed by our roll call. So let's meet our cast for this issue. We got Psylocke, of course, that is Quanan, X-23, Kid Cable, Dazzler, and Mr. Sinister. So is Dazzler joining the team? Is she going to be a fallen angel? Well, we'll find out. Now we resume actual comics content, and we're in the present on Krakoa. Psylocke and X-23 are talking about trust in what feels like a very convenient little conversation. Uh, Psylocke is basically talking in riddles, which comes across as uh, like really wanting to sound deep, um, when in all actuality... It just sounds like uh, somebody's trying to impress their ninth grade creative writing teacher. Um, we get lines like, I'll show you how to be a master, but even still, every master is still a slave. And come on. Uh, now, after baffling Laura with BS, Psylocke breaks away to chat up Kid Cable at Carousel. So the, uh, the mutants are still dancing. No, the dance party has not ended yet. Uh, Psylocke finds Cable and asks why he still subjects himself to this weird dance party if he's not going to join in. He says something along the lines of wanting to feel what the others feel, sort of by osmosis. He then reveals that he did some digging on Overclock, which uh, I honestly forgot all about. Now we learn that the, the town of Sao Mateus in Brazil is currently on fire. 
We can see some large spidery mechs terrorizing a tiny town. Uh, those people have been enslaved by an overclock cartel. Even the children, whose uh, tiny hands and fig- fingers make them a great asset for something, I guess. You know, on that subject, or sort of on that subject, my wife recently got me to start watching Breaking Bad. Uh, this is a show I've avoided successfully for like a decade now. So now, you know, as a guy on the internet who's watched a couple episodes of Breaking Bad, I'm more or less an expert on making drugs, right? They, they, you know, from all the circles I've heard Breaking Bad discussed in, you become an expert on making drugs if you watch a couple episodes of that show. Uh, but still, I don't know what tiny fingers have to do with drug making. Maybe we'll learn something new. Anywho, little Nate wants to uh, wants their unnamed team of oddballs and misfits to head to Sal Mateus to rescue the kiddos. Psylocke ain't feeling it. Now, she comments that each time they leave Krakoa, they're making a risk of the island itself turning against them. And so, they're going to need to pick their battles now more than ever. You know, if they choose to leave the island, if it's up to Psylocke, it's going to be in pursuit of Apoth. And Apoth is, uh, of course, the fella we were introduced to, or sort of introduced to last issue. Cable is rightfully annoyed and threatens to head there on his own. Then Dazzler. Hey, I'm sure she's going to do something amazing here, considering she got herself a little character tile on the roll call page. She actually does not. Um, worth noting, for fellow lapsed fans, Dazzler is back in a more more classic getup. Because uh, the last time I saw her, she had like this sort of like punk rock look with a half-shaved head, which actually looked even more dated than her disco duds. It felt very, very past its sell-by date. Uh, anyway, Dazzler encourages Psylocke to embrace the joy of Krakoa and, you know, have a good time with friends. Psylocke agrees that she could use a friend and then walks away. Is, is this high school creative writing? Is it? Oh, well, how would you like an info page? How about two info pages? Because we got two. Uh, first, a page discussing the way of the hand, which was... Uh, quite boring. Second, a more flowery version of the same, which, while still boring, is at least far a fair amount shorter. Back to comics, and we are back to flashback land, but now we're in Japan. Now, after a bit of a chase, a woman has crashed her car into a light post. She finds herself surrounded by a gaggle of Cobra Commander-looking goofs with their guns drawn. Not for long, though, because someone with a big ol' katana is there to save the day. And so, body parts are just flying everywhere. This is, of course, Quanan. She takes the woman to safety, fills her in on the situation. Uh, you know, she, Psylocke, that is, reveals that she just killed this woman's husband. So we can probably assume that uh, this is the goober from the opening flashback she's talking about. She further reveals that she was also contracted to kill this woman. So she's going to kill the husband, who she already killed, and she was supposed to kill the wife. But she ain't going to do it. Now, you see, our hero touched the fella's mind before killing him, and since he lied for and died for this woman and their unborn child, Quanan has decided to show a bit of mercy. She also gives the woman a bunch of money and a boot in the ass out of Japan. We learn that this woman did not get too far. She was captured, tortured, and killed. But she never spilled the beans that Quanan tried to save her. From here, we go into another flashback. Flashback inside a flashback. A few panels from Quanan's youth, and we get a, 
they, they talk about butterflies a bit. You know how this book is. To the present, Psylocke is at Bar Sinister, and they're talking about butterflies. Now, Quinan reveals that she hates that butterflies are something that she and Betsy Braddock ever had in common. Sinister grants her passage off the island and assures her that he is her ally. And so, we meet up with Quinan at Cable's house. She agrees to accompany him to Sal Mateus. Oh, and, and X-23 is coming, too. Quinan states that she wants to teach Cable about war, and X-23 about rage. And all she wants is, in exchange is to learn from them about... Goodness. Goodness, indeed. Um, we wrap up this issue in Sal Mateus. Cable does a scan... And then our ramshackle trio finds themselves under attack by a giant spidery mech. So that is a wrap for our Dawn of X number twos. So, uh, I'd say let's talk about this, but there isn't a whole lot to say, is there? Uh, (laughs) This was kind of a nothing issue, wasn't it? Um... I'm sitting here, and I, you know, I know we have a head of X, right? We've got uh, we've got Hickman here, who's who's steering the ship, and I'm sure he's giving the writers a little bit of guidance on on things he wants included, so we can get to a a, a merging point, right? Because I'm sure, you know, we have Sword of X's that's gonna or X, however the hell you say the name, X of Swords, Ten of Swords, X of Tens, uh, as Jason puts it. Um, so I'm sure that there's going to be some some cohesion, right? Some cohesive sort of a fiber running through this. So I'm trying to think about what the point of the series is, if there even is one. Um, I did note a few times during the uh, proceedings that Quinan wielded a big old katana. So maybe those are seeds being planted for exosoids? I mean, I almost have to assume that's the case. Otherwise... What what could the point of this possibly be? I mean, who's asking for this? <laughs> I didn't. Uh, I really didn't care about the care for this one. I was uh, very optimistic about the first one, or maybe too optimistic for the first issue here. Um, while it wasn't completely up my alley, you know, I, I try to temper my scores uh, by reconciling that not everything's going to be written for me. So I try to. And I don't even score things. I just try to frame my mind right, I guess. Now, if you're a regular listener, you might recall that the last few times we covered X-Force, I mentioned that I thought Ben Percy, the writer, can be sort of kind of unsubtle with his methods, right? I, I've, I've mentioned that. Um, you know, this Fallen Angel story, though... I hate to do, like, the old internet meme here, but it, it, it wants X-Force to hold its beer. I feel like the level of depth, preciousness, and melodrama we're letting Quinan indulge in is wholly unearned, and as such, it feels wildly forced. It's trying hard, maybe too hard, to be poignant. But, uh, you know, as Damien mentioned in his feedback for the first issue of Fallen Angels, it really just feels like a holdover from the mid-90s. Uh, I don't know who the story might be aimed at, but unfortunately I'm not part of that group of people. I will maintain, however, that the art fits the tone of the book, and I really enjoy Kodransky's stuff. Um, but I mean, other than that, I mean, is there anything else to, st- to say? Uh, 
you know, maybe if I spent a little bit more time unraveling the repetitive and inane butterfly chatter, I'd find something, but... I mean, I was sort of over that last issue. Um, I I was hopeful that we'd start seeing more members join this uh, unnamed team here, especially, you know, we see Dazzler in the roll call box, you know? Not that I'm a huge fan of Dazzler or anything, but I just feel like she could have been... Maybe a fun addition, you know, uh, to a book that features three very serious and navel-gazy sorts of characters here. Throw Dazzler in there for some comic relief, you know? Throw throw her in there for maybe just as a point-of-view character who isn't up their own ass like these other characters can be. Um, Unfortunately, you know, I I do have all the issues. I've been getting them as they've been coming out. I haven't read them, but uh, I don't recall seeing anybody but our big three on any of the remaining covers. So I I guess time will tell whether or not their ranks increase. Um, But unfortunately, and I hate being negative, I, uh, I would be much more comfortable sitting on my fence, as I usually do. But uh, this isn't for me. But in the interest of completionism, and only in the interest of completionism, we will see this through till its end here. We only have four more issues to go. We're a third of the way through it. So we're getting there. And, and you know what? Hey, I've been proven wrong before. I've been proven, I've been proven wrong more times than I've been proven right. So... Maybe the next issue will hit, and it'll just it'll just knock me for a loop, and I'll love it. Fingers crossed. <laughs> we'll see. In uh, we'll see. You know, in about a week, how we're feeling about that. Uh, but that's it for uh, the number twos. Next, we uh, we've got our milestone twenty fifth episode of of X Lapsed here. I'm thinking hollowfoil, chromium plated. You know, maybe die cut. We'll, uh, we'll do it up good here, and it's going to feature our first Dawn of X, number three, with X-Men. But before I let you guys go, do you have a bit of feedback we're going to hit today? Now, we'll start with Damien. He's discussing X-Men number two. And he says, I've definitely got less to say as we move on. This issue is really just set up for X of Swords. The whole Summoner stuff lost me. Why should I care who this is? The whole reuniting islands can't feel significant as we had only a few weeks to process the split, which was a tiny element of a previous story. Now, if you haven't listened to the uh, episode where we discussed X-Men number two, the whole gimmick there is that Krakoa was searching out this island that appeared, this uh, reef uh, or coral that showed up. And, uh, you know, the X-Men didn't know what was going on, they didn't know why... Krakoa would be attracted to this island because they don't know Krakoa's origin like we do. And uh, basically what it wanted to do was either bang and or merge with this, you know, this coral. And uh, we found out that the island was split during Hoxpox, right? And uh, Damien's point here is excellent because uh, it's like almost soap operatic in the pacing. Um... Now, I've talked a bit on this channel about how you know my, my wife got me to start watching Days of Our Lives like 15 years ago. We watch it every day, every single weekday. We watch Days of Our Lives without fail. Um, and this reveal or story beat feels very much like something out of that, you know, as it pertains to pacing. Not so much in story. Nothing, nothing quite as interesting as islands banging and merging happens on days, unfortunately. But, uh... In, in the soap opera here, if a character is set to come back, you know, a character you haven't seen in a while, or if a particular beat of a story is about to change, suddenly, like, all the dialogue becomes about that character or that beat, right? 
you'll have like a couple of characters sitting at the at the cafe or the pub and they'll say, oh, I wonder what Sammy might think of this. And you think to yourself, well, Sammy hasn't been on the show for four years. So <laughs> now that they're talking about her again in passing, well, she's probably going to show up within the next few days and without fail. That's generally the case. Now here we have this new origin for Krakoa, which, you know, it was only a, a couple of weeks ago, like Damien said, that we found out that Krakoa was... Uh, you know, was split in the first place. So there's definitely a quick revisit, and it kind of takes the oomph out of the original beat, uh, for sure. It's a... Uh, you know, make us wait for stuff like that, right? Not that it's a huge thing, but still. Uh, back to Damien, he says, The thing most jarring to me about this issue is the Rachel-Cable relationship. Surely there should be acknowledgement that baby Cable was part-raised by an older Ra- Rachel, and that young Rachel knew a much older Cable. And uh, yes, yeah, I mentioned that during the uh, during the discussion there. That they they really fell into that like sort of you know the squabbling siblings uh, mold, right? And uh, to me, I took that as just like another bit of the the uncanny summer house tone, you know. It feels to me like we looked at that issue in issue one of X Men. We had like the summer house dinner scene, and then in X Men two we had the Summers family you know, outing here. And it feels to me that these characters aren't necessarily in character. It's almost like they're just playing roles. I mean, Rachel and Cable is like the archetype for the silly squabbling siblings, and uh, so that's exactly how they're going to pay it, play it. Just like Scott, you know, he falls into that, that archetypical silly sitcom dad mold, you know? It really feels to me like and I don't know everything about the Resurrections. I know only what I've read. Like, is did Xavier do something? Is Xavier putting putting expectations in where it's like it's like, well, no, you're the dad. You act like this, and so Cyclops is going to start acting like like he's you know talking to a laugh track. You know, it feels very very weird. I almost hope that's the case because otherwise. Otherwise, these characters are just not what they have ever been before, you know? At least, they're not as deep as they were before. They're just taking these very, very silly elements and putting them at the forefront. Now, back to uh, Damien. He says, By the way, I've been reading X of Swords as Cross of Swords. I did ask how we pronounce it, right? Um, Now, he says Cross of Swords, implying a battle. And he says but I have no idea what the intention is. I doubt it's ten, but you never know. And then a little bit later on, he wrote and said, I just read the first issue of X of Swords, and it is ten. According to the story, it's a tarot card. Apparently, anything I say is as likely to be true as your guesses. So, yeah, I didn't... I I heard some people say ten. I've seen some people say X and cross. That's probably the best take I've heard so far, because it actually makes sense. Um... I will probably keep saying X of Swords because, I mean, it is an X there, right? It, it, it is a letter X, and also I'm an idiot. Um, I figure maybe I'll just start calling these books like Ten Force or Ten Men. You know, giant size Ten Men, Ten Factor. Uh, hey, we got Fallen Angels. I'll call Laura Ten Twenty Three, right? <laughs> Do that to really make people uh, kind of squirm in their seats and think that I'm a complete horse's ass, but... Uh, Yes, uh, thank you so much for the uh, the email, Damien. Um, 
and yeah, there will be as as I proved today with this episode, there will be far less to say about some of these issues as we uh, as we move on. Uh, not every single one of them is going to be destination reading, and unfortunately, Fallen Angels number two. Well, it's fallen into that trap. Uh, but thank you so much, Damien. Our next piece comes from Jason Colby here. He says, Hi again, Chris. Here's a few things I thought about when listening to your X-Lapsed coverage of Marauders Number 2, or when reading Marauders Number 2 that sprung up, uh, that sprung from a randomly firing neuron when I typed this. I'm having a beer while I knock this out, so apologies for any rambling, and feel free to edit ruthlessly if you end up wanting to give any of this nonsense airtime. And of course, I'm, I don't edit things. <laughs> I don't even edit my own stammering, so I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to edit every, anything out. Uh, uh, Jason's first point, the X-Desk data pages. Now, of course, that was in Marauders number two. We got a letter from the X-Desk uh, discussing the exploits of, uh, of Captain Kate's uh, you know, crew. And Jason says, I think this is a pretty good gimmick. Uh, minor spoiler, this isn't the last one we'll see. It gives the writer a nice way to show how the human world, specifically from the American direction, is reacting to what's going on in Krakoa. We don't otherwise get a lot of human POV in these books. Also an opportunity to get in some quick exposition and to seed things to pay off in comic pages later on. And yeah, I did enjoy the... Uh, I, I, I think I said I enjoyed it. I, I don't remember. <laughs> it's been so long. But uh, the X desk from uh, you know from the feds, I think that's a cool way to do it. And and to Jason's point, uh, it does give a different uh, it does give a different point of view. Like all we're seeing is what's happening. We don't know how it's being spun. We don't know how it's being explained to people in power. We don't know how we we just don't know how it's being presented. So these give us an opportunity to see that. And maybe, as Jason said, maybe it is seeding things that we'll be able to see play out later on. So yes, the X-Desk is fine. I'm, I'm down with that. Um, Batrock. <laughs> yes, he's become one of the go-to joke villains. Who else belongs in that group? The Trapster? Kite Man over at the Distinguished Competition? Who else? Anyway, it was nice to see Batrock taken seriously recently. In issue number six of the current Black Cat, Everyone's favorite master of the French martial, art, martial arts, Savat, goes on a date with Felicia Hardy. And then they go steal something together. Hey, it's important for a couple to have common interests. And that actually sounds like it might be a fun issue. Um, I, I've said it before. You know, I said it when we, when we covered Marauders number two. The, when I see someone use Batrack, I usually assume that the writer is just standing there, or sitting there, you know, rubbing their hands together, waiting for the memes to start pouring in. Just like... Just like Kite Man, you know, just like Paste Pot Pete, you know, it's those those ha ha random characters that we see uh, that uh, that social media seems to take such a such a shine to. Um, teams. Jason's next point is about teams. He says you mentioned this episode that you were surprised at at the lack of any real teams in what you thought might be team based books. Two words: fear not. So that's good. Uh, Dallas is right. Now, uh, this is Jason. He says, I'm going to agree with your correspondent, Dallas, that the series of one-shots nature of X-Men is working well for me. At the beginning of Dawn of X, Hickman said something to the effect that he was going to use the main X-Men book to showcase Cyclops and to use him to peek in at different aspects of the new status quo. So far, it's been pretty effective. But I can see how some readers might get annoyed when a storyline set up in another book doesn't get the payoff there, but get res gets resolved in the X-Men book instead. And yeah, that's kind of 
that's kind of you know <laughs> you take the grizzle with the meat right it's uh because i i would complain about that if i wasn't so you know in set in my ways where i want all these books to kind of bleed into one another i want i want stuff like you know xavier's passing in one book to be addressed in all the other books I come from that time, you know, that my X-Men were were the 1990s where they were basically a fiefdom unto themselves. You know, they never really left their yard, but all the books were interconnected or all the books referenced one another. So you could, it's like you had to read everything, basically, because, you know, for several months out of the year, they would be literally crossing over, <laughs> but for the rest of the time... You know, stuff would be addressed, you know, or if the if X-Force was staying at the uh, at Xavier's mansion, you might see X-Force in the background of an X-Men issue, or, or there might be a scene where, where Sam talks to Scott, you know, you'd see stuff like that. But I like that. I like that, but I can definitely see how a reader, a new reader perhaps, would be very, very irritated that if, if they picked X-Force as their book, or if they, God forbid, picked Fallen Angels as their book... And uh, and whatever comes up isn't solved there, and but you'd have to buy an issue of X Men instead. I could definitely see that being annoying, for sure, for sure. Uh, from here, Jason shares with us his brief X history. He says, "Last time I wrote in, you were surprised that anyone would have Hox Pox Docs be their first experience reading X books. Really, more a matter of timing than anything else. I only started really reading comics around 2016." The first comic I subscribed to as it came out was Tom King's Vision, and then I found my way to DC stuff when they had their rebirth. And then I started listening to the Weird Science DC Comics podcast and first heard you and Reggie doing your thing. I think you two were on the Young Animal beat at that point. And uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening. It's always it's always cool to, to see another uh, member of the uh, GFC, you know. Um, the uh, That Young Animal... Um, I'll finish. I'll finish uh, Jason's point here, but I do want to discuss a little bit about the young animal and what that taught me about uh, about the the current year reviewing process. Um, Jason continues, as you might recall, the mid 2010s were kind of a dark time for the X Men. When the blue and gold books got their start, I took a peek, but nothing there hooked me. There seemed to be multiple young and old instances of just about every character running around simultaneously, and then there was a vampire running a school in Central Park, and yeah, it didn't grab me. But then I looked in again when Jonathan Hickman took over, and here we are. I'll go back someday and read the classic runs, but right now my knowledge of back history is severely limited. So a couple of things I want to talk about there. Um, first, uh... I think it was last episode when we were, uh, I was covering Damien's message about Fallen Angels number one, and I talked about how I have like a current year comics cushion when I discuss a book. I try to be, I try to like crank up the optimism a little bit because it's kind of how you have to be um, with current year books. Young Animal uh, taught me about that because there was a book from Young Animal and I've talked about it a few times. I actually have a whole episode of Chris's on Infinite Earths about this very event. I think it was episode 12 in the archives. Um, Mother Panic was a book for Young Animal. It introduced a brand new character. It was written by Jody Hauser and she had a rotating cast of artists. Um, and at first, Reggie and I didn't care for it. We did not care for it, but we were always very, very careful about how we expressed that. 
We wouldn't say this is a bad book. We would not say this book sucks. We would not say we hate this book. We would say something along the lines of, we're not the audience for this book. Kind of like I said today with Fallen Angels number two. Mother Panic was a book that we wanted to like because it was a brand new character and we don't get those very often in comics. But we didn't like it at first. We eventually came around to really, really enjoying the book toward the uh, like the second two-thirds of the run and then into the follow-up miniseries, which we adored. We adored it, but the thing of it is, we were working for Weird Science at that time, and they they used a you know an X out of ten rating system to kind of fall in line with the, you know the comic book roundup groups and all that kind of stuff. So while saying nothing outright bad about Mother Panic, I think I gave the first issue like a six point five out of ten. Said you know there is an audience for this book. Unfortunately, it's not me. Well, people. When you write for a site that uses a number rating scale, you might find that a lot of your audience doesn't bother to read the review, but only reads the number. So, I could have been saying any number of things in these reviews, but the fact that I gave it a 6.5 out of 10 was enough for people to decide that I was public enemy number one. I was a misogynist because I would not say anything nice about a book that a woman wrote. I was every ist you could imagine. People came to uh, my blog, Chris's on Infinite Earths, and bombarded me. It might have just been one person, but I was bombarded with comments calling me out, and but not, not in a constructive sort of way, and not in a way that really invited any follow-up or like a response. It was basically just telling me I was the worst person on the planet, and uh, in very vulgar sorts of ways. And... Uh, you know, I learned then and there. It's like, wow, you know, um, you almost have to, you have to overcorrect. And uh, I've never lied in a review since then, but uh, but that's where my cushion comes in, you know. So instead of a 6.5, I might give it the cushion. And it's like, well, okay, well, it's not for me. But if you, this is your sort of book, you'd probably like it. So maybe it's a 7.5. Or if I'm in a really good mood in eight, <laughs> you know, um, that's that really informed the way I did current year reviews. Um, that's kind of why with these issues, some of them haven't been for me, but I I have trouble saying anything outright negative about it. You know, um, of course, we're doing this in Fallen Angels number two, where I think I was maybe a little mean. I don't know, but I, I was honest. <laughs> That's the thing. Um, but uh, the Young Animal series of uh, podcasts that is available here at the uh, Chris and Reggie channel at the archives, chrisandreggie.podbean.com. There are 18 episodes covering every single book from Young Animal from uh, 2016 to 2019, I think. Uh, we didn't do the second wave, of course, but uh, we did the entire first wave um, through Milk Wars and into the uh, miniseries and. It's about a 30-hour-long playlist, so if you have 30 hours to spare, give them a shot. <laughs> it's, if you ever if you want to hear me drop my first F-bomb, and I think last F-bomb, it's in the Young Animal Gathering. You can hunt it down there. Uh, <laughs> but to uh, Jason's other point, he says something here which 
as a tenured fan of the X-Men bothered me, and I could not imagine how a new reader would take to this. He says here, there seem to be multiple young and old instances of just about every character running around simultaneously. Boom. That was... That was crap. (laughs) You know? We had the original five, then we had the other original five. We had Old Man Logan. It was ridiculous how many versions of the same characters we had running around. And uh, I couldn't imagine a brand new reader coming in trying to navigate that and uh, trying to realize the significance of it. I'd been reading this for a quarter century at that point, and I couldn't figure out the significance of it, and it made me run away for the first time ever. I ran away with the intention of never, ever coming back. So yes, (laughs) like Jason, nothing hooked me there either, pal. (laughs) Um, Now Jason continues. He says, this is regarding humor in the books. He says, What do you think about how humor has been used in the Dawn of X book so far? I can't think of many times when it's been deployed well. And lots of times when the dialogue was clearly supposed to be guffaw-inducing, but left me either cold or actively cringing. Okay, Kitty trying to waltz through a gate, but instead busting her nose on it did make me smile, but only because I'm a bad person. Her whole mutant deal is being able to walk through things, so having the thing that was most that is porous to every other mutant be rock solid to her is some well-deployed irony. Other than that, I haven't gotten a lot of chuckles from these books. Hadn't really thought about it before, but were there any jokes even attempted in House of X or Powers of X? I can't immediately come up with any. And I think that was a good choice, given the content and tone of those books. Humor in a serious comic can be can be hard to pull off. It's great when it lands, but when it doesn't, it can pull me right out of the world the book of the book faster than any about about any other defect. Better not to do humor than to do it poorly. And uh, I'm trying to think here. Um, was there any humor? You know, I could think of when we went to Bar Sinister, right? We went to Bar Sinister, and there was that bit about Magneto's cape. And although I found it wildly out of character for Sinister, it still got me to chuckle. You know, your your cape is fabulous, you know? It was just... Uh, it caught me off guard, which might be the reason why I smiled, but even now I think it was funny. Uh, wildly out of character for the Sinister I knew growing up, but funny. I'm trying to think if there's any other any other jokes here, because I know in these, I couldn't tell you when, because, I mean, this uh, X-Lapsed is probably up to something along the lines of 30 hours itself at this point. I don't know, yeah, I don't know what I've... Uh, when I've pointed out that I've laughed, but I know I've mentioned that I've laughed a couple times, or a handful of times. I just just outright can't remember right now. But uh, but your point is well taken. Um, these are these are serious comics, um, which was what I thought was going to be a turnoff to me. I thought that the serious tone of this uh, new world was just going to be enough to you know kind of push me out. Um, but it's it's held on to me so far. But I, I'm trying to think if I can point out anything that was outright funny, <laughs> and I can't. Um, outside of the cape thing, and of course Kitty, you know, smashing her face. That that was funny, uh, especially with how how annoying I found her to be. <laughs> Seeing her walk into a wall was kind of funny. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll put a pin in that and try to think of. Uh, 
of what made me laugh here, and I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to, you know, remember to to put it in next time. Um, that's the end of uh, Jason's email. He says that's more than too much from me. So until Colossus becomes a pitchman for Rustolium, make mine X laps. Well, thank you so much for writing in, Jason, and for sharing your thoughts. Uh, it's always it's always a treat when you share your thoughts. I I, I very very much appreciate it. But uh, you know, before we actually close this one out, I almost forgot to do it. But let's rank the number twos here. Let's try to rank. The Dawn of X number twos goes without saying at the very bottom of that list is Fallen Angels number two. Did not care for it. Um, next would be uh, Excalibur number two. Excalibur number two would be number five. Uh, I think. Yeah, I think Marauders number two would be uh, fourth. Then X Force would be third. Second would be X Men, and uh, New Mutants would be uh, my favorite for this uh, for this uh, second set of books. I was going to say second month, but these were all double shipping. So the second set of books: New Mutants number one, then X Men, then X Force, then Marauders, then Excalibur, then Fallen Angels. So I'd love to hear your guys's lists and uh, see if they match up, or if you guys think I'm completely out of my mind. Either way works fine for me. But uh, <laughs> but thank you, everybody, for uh, taking part and enjoying and hanging out and all that good stuff. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find the show notes and all the stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com or xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can find us on Facebook at 90s X-Men, and the complete audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And of course, you know, you can find those young animals there, all 30 hours of them, if you want to hear about Doom Patrol, Shade the Changing Girl, Mother Panic, and Cave Carson having an interstellar eye. Well, <laughs> we got them there. Um, but I think that's it for today. Uh, one last time, thank you all so, so much for listening. I very, very much appreciate it. It means, it means so much to me. I, I really, uh, in all seriousness, I, it's hard for me to put into words what it means to me. But uh, thank you all. And uh, till next time, uh, with our big milestone 25th episode, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.